Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifchecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by my former co-host who was sent off to the undying lands but has unexpectedly returned, Ollie Brady. Ollie, welcome. Uh, always a pleasure to be back, Sarah. Um, for the keen-eared listener, they'll hear that I'm talking a little bit through my nose because apparently the undying lands involves having a cold that lasts three weeks. But well, That's all that swimming. Swimming? Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's all that's... that swimming to get back from like, the undying lands. Sarah... You know that Ollie does not swim. <laughs> like he, he he can swim, but that doesn't mean that he's going to voluntarily choose to do it. That leads into what we are perhaps going to be talking about today. Well, first, do you want to introduce yourselves to the listeners? There might be listeners who this is their first episode who have never heard you before. Oh, this I always forget this, that there's a possibility that people listen for the first time, and especially with something like this. Um, my name is Ollie, and I'm Irish, as you can probably tell from my accent and talking through my nose. Um... I uh, am a friend of Sarah's. Well, I don't know how long we've been friends, Sarah and I, like at least six or seven years. And um, Yeah, I feel like I, I was the original co-host of the podcast before Sarah uh, fired me. And um, and now every now and then she... Sent you off to the Undying forces, Lands in she, Yes, <laughs> sent me off to the Undying Lands as a reward. Um, but uh, yeah... Just I'm 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 struck by this question that's in front of me in Sarah's notes. By the way, for those people who are listening, Sarah makes extensive notes, and then I sound like I know what I'm talking about, but I'm really reading from Sarah's notes. But it says, "Why did you want to talk about this media?" Um, I did not want to talk about this media. <laughs> I I bullied you into talking. Spoiler about this alert! Media. I enjoyed this show, but it's so forgettable to me that. The idea of me watching it a second time, and I did. I did, in fairness, I did try and watch it a second time um, about three weeks ago when I was first starting to feel a little bit ill, and I was taking a couple of evenings. Now the World Cup was on, which obviously, as a as a, a soccer loving person, I have really been focusing on that. But I was watching a few episodes, and I watched. I think I saw six of the episodes. So I didn't see the last two, but I mean, it had only been yeah less than a month since I'd seen those, so it wasn't too bad. But. There's just so much of this that is forgettable. Yeah. So, okay. So we're talking about the Rings of Power, the 2022 Amazon Lord of the Rings series. I have not rewatched it since I originally watched it. And I also um, found it somewhat forgettable. So this is going to be a fantastic (laughs) episode. Brilliant. Uh, (laughs) But... You know, I, I'm you know, I I am a lifelong Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, I have spent a lot of time getting to talk about Lord of the Rings recently, and uh, I do just want to share. So this person does not appear so far in the show, but um, I have for my dog. My dog has a uh, Witch King of Angmar plushie. <laughs> Is that what she was playing with when I first popped in? Uh, no, actually, I think that was her Mandalorian. She also has a Mandalorian, <laughs> but the Mandalorian isn't relevant to the uh, discussion Listen, of this show. if you want to talk Mandalorian, I will talk Mando and Baby Yoda all day long. <laughs> I get it. His name is Grogu, but I'm going to call him Baby Yoda because it's a better name. I'm not sure I can ever justify that as medieval. It's Grogu. <laughs> Quiet, please. I, know. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, also he's called Baby Yoda, but yeah, I don't think I can claim that that's medieval media. But... <laughs> we can make an okay, attempt. So Opie... <laughs> 
So Opie has a Witch King of Angmar plushie, and every time she goes after her Witch King of Angmar plushie, I go, Opie, Opie, you are no man. Good job, you are no man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, that's adorable, but also, oh. What is is Rings of Power, the 2022 Amazon original series? So this is a series that is based loosely, on Tolkien's history of Middle-earth given prior to the events of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. So it's actually mostly based on the uh, Lord of the Rings appendices, specifically. I, I find this so funny. I was reading up at it at the time when the series was coming out on what they had the rights to. And Amazon have the right. rights to a lot. But uh-huh. when, or now, they have <laughs> But when they first greenlit the series... They didn't have the rights to a lot of stuff. Now, so for example, <clears throat> if they wanted to, they could now remake the Lord of the Rings movies and do yeah. that version of Lord of the Rings. At the time when they first went into the series The Rings of Power, they did not have the rights to that. So they were only allowed to have the extended stuff and a lot of the stuff that was written by um, Christopher Tolkien, or as I like to call it, uh, money-grabbing relative Tolkien. And... <clears throat> all of that stuff is um i'm trying to use the, the best way to describe this because i understand how much sarah loves lord of the rings and sarah and myself have had this conversation several times in so much as and i'm gonna lay my cards on the table now i really enjoy lord of the rings i think lord of the rings is a really well written and interesting fantasy novel and as the progenitor of the fantasy genre, which it kind of is. It is. And it is the first famous fantasy novel. I think it deserves its place in history. I, however, think it has been surpassed by many fantasy writers writing many wonderful fantasy series. And when... You then start going into the minutiae, or uh, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that properly, uh, and the appendices, I think it starts to become weak. And um, I can see Sarah, Sarah Hiftecker's face right now is, how dare you? I think the appendices are brilliant and enriching world building, and that they truly show that Not that there have not been wonderful fantasy series since with fantastic world building, but I think that the appendices and other material is where you really see how much is behind Lord of the Rings that does not actually show up precisely in text, but that I think the whole world is deeply enriched by the fact that Tolkien created all of these things that he didn't have to include. I think it's brilliant. I think I think Tolkien, there, I think there has been a lot of excellent fantasy, but I, I think Tolkien at least is a, is a classic that will never not be essential for anyone oh, who is a fan again, of the fantasy genre. Again, 100% agree with you. I think Lord of the Rings is essential. I think Tolkien's writing is exceptional. But people act like Lord of the Rings is unimpeachable untouchable is perfect in every way and it's what we're going to talk a little bit uh, about the reaction to this show and some of the people who are having these extreme reactions to the show legitimately act like they think that 
everything Tolkien wrote down is, and I'm going to use the word gospel, which we both know is, come on, not exactly 100% accurate, but they believe that it is gospel and it has to be adhered to, to the letter, um, to the excruciatingly detailed letter. And as I said, as somebody who has read so much fantasy over the years, and Lord of the Rings was my introduction to a bigger world a richer world a, a huge environment um huge backstory and stuff and i genuinely lo- love the series it's just it's not that good it's just there have been better okay better examples of it and better things <laughs> written in the genre and and i also think that tolkien would want that to have happened it, it just it's mm-hmm. been almost a hundred years since Lord of the Rings, or let's just say ninety okay. years, right? And if you just take any other artistic endeavor, um, and something that was produced ninety years and was the first version of it, it would be ridiculous for people to say, you know, that first one, the prototype, best. I mean, so okay, I dramatically disagree with any assessment that includes the words "not that good." Oh well, but I do think that I mean, you know, that the genre has transformed and it does different things. And I also think that you know, I I unequivocally love Tolkien, and I feel the very much like every time I go back to reading Lord of the Rings, I I get new things out of it, and I enjoy the experience anew. I also don't think that means it's not subject to criticism. As I have said, I'm sure many times in many different places. Wow, has Tolkien like never seen a woman before? Because kind of it seems like maybe Tolkien, like I know that's not true, but that's kind of the vibe of Lord of the Rings. Like Tolkien just like seems intensely disinterested in the existence of women. That's a critique that I have, for example, of Lord of the Rings. And I also, in general, even though I deeply love Lord of the Rings, I would tell anybody who liked fantasy that you should read Lord of the Rings if you like fantasy and you have not read Lord of the Rings. At the same time, I don't think there's anything that is not subject to criticism and critique. I mean, and and people treat Tolkien like the... There are some people who treat Tolkien the way that some people treat the Bible, I do not treat either Tolkien or the Bible in that particular way. I don't think I treat anything in that way. But that was definitely something that I think kind of came out in the course of the responses to this show, is the idea that there is something almost sacrilegious about any departure from precisely what they see as Tolkien's vision, which I don't think is the best I, I mean, I, I don't think listening to those people is in any way the best way to make any Lord of the Rings media. And and I have a very intense sentimental attachment to Tolkien and to Lord of the Rings. You know, as I said, even with that, I don't think he is above criticism. But there also is a way in which, like, anything that is Lord of the Rings is going to to get me um, in a way that, I mean, in some ways I wish this, I wish this show, I will say like got me a little bit more, which is I think not because it's, I'm not sure the the reasons that I ultimately, I'm not sure I was a hundred percent on board with this show are definitely not the reasons that of the, like, you can't do anything that's different from Tolkien. Like that's not my, like that, that is not how I approach pretty much anything. I, I don't like departures from the source material when they make a story worse. I find those frustrating 
Um, but yeah, my, my critiques of this show, as we'll get into, like, they're not really about like, oh, like you didn't do exactly what Tolkien might've done. And there is something problematic about that, but I, and that's very similar to Amazon's wheel of time where most of our critiques were not to do with the fact that, oh my God, this is different from the books. Different from the books is fine. It's when you do different from the books and you do it poorly, that's when it becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and here, I don't know, here, here, there's just, there's just completely different things. Like, I, I just have, yeah, completely, I mean, because, especially because, like, a lot of the story, I would say, in general, is, like, not particularly things that Tolkien actually really goes in depth on, just because, you know, he didn't, right? So a lot of the story are things that are essentially original material, and I don't think that is a bad thing. I just, you know, then there's essentially a, like, well, do we like this original material or not? Yeah, um, and also just for... So, your dear listeners, I just want to warn people in advance that I will be making allusions to the fact that a character who may or may not be Gandalf might be getting it on with some really short people. <laughs> um, because I'm, if the show is not trying to make us believe that, then they're doing a bad job of not making me believe that. <laughs> Yeah, I will also have some thoughts about that. And the other thing related to that that I'm going to say outright is that uh, we are going to spoil the hell out of this show, starting with the credits. So if you have not finished this season of The Rings of Power, you might want to finish this season of The Rings of Power (laughs) and wait and come back to the show. (laughs) Because, yeah, I... I will be spoiling big things in we're, like We're going to talk seconds. about all eight episodes, maybe not necessarily in a great ton of detail, but we'll talk about the major events. And I think maybe we could just give <laughs> what, uh, a vibe check on the episode. How did we feel about it? Yeah. Um, I was looking through yeah. your notes, and I, again, listeners, Sarah takes impeccable notes. Um, and if we were to read it verbatim, this episode would be 14 hours long. So we will, uh, we're going to run through the main event. I let, I would say I let, it's Sarah's podcast. Because it, it's your podcast, <laughs> yeah. as we forgot it. Um, but usually what happens is I interject with something Sarah mentions. And then I'm like, no, she'll run through the entire plot. And then we'll just say, well, you know, this is how I felt when I was watching this episode. This is how I, I thought about this particular thing so it might not be as in-depth as when we did say the Merlin um episode which was mm-hmm. close or to, when we did Wheel of Time Wheel where of I time. think we talked for four hours we talked for a lot Sarah um and even when it was it was edited down I was listening to myself going oh my god <laughs> like how people are going to listen <laughs> to me and my <clears throat> absolute ridiculous levels of fandom for that series um uh even even I would say this will be less in depth on some episodes than, for example, your Game of Thrones episode was, and you guys basically mm-hmm. did the entire seven seasons. Well, we were very we were very thematic on Game of Thrones, yeah. so like sometimes we went into a lot of detail, and sometimes we did very broad strokes. So. Um... Yeah, but so we will not have a ton of detail, including honestly starting with the fact that I've written down a bunch of names. There's so many people in this cast. I'm going to mention a couple of them. I'm not mentioning all of them. There's It's a massive, massive cast. Um, I would say our kind of main star is probably Morvith Clark as Galadriel. She's also Mina Harker in Dracula. Dracula with an iPad. Dracula with an iPad. I'm not totally <laughs> sure how I feel <laughs> about this casting. And, or well, okay, I don't know if the problem... 
I don't know if the problem is the acting or the writing. She is um, intensely stoic, mm-hmm. would be one way to describe her character. I don't know if that is slightly wooden acting or a directorial choice. I don't think I love it. I, I think I wanted to be more invested in the character of Galadriel than I think I was. And I'm saying that with a specific, like, I'm mad at myself about, or I'm, okay, I'm mad about that because I'm so mad at all of the, like, dumb bros who, the thing that they're mad about is, why is Galadriel so powerful and cool? That's dumb. She's a woman. Women aren't that great. And first of all, there is textual justification in the Silmarillion for Galadriel being just an absolute badass. So, you know, shut up. Yeah. Second, but just also just for a even record, without like, textual justification, just whatever you know, just to play devil's advocate for a second. I mean, those guys make some good points. Um, <laughs> again, again, please. Do they? It, that's true. It is. It is. It is bad for a woman to uh, be able to do anything. <laughs> Imagine her having her own her own motivations. <clears throat> yeah, but uh, I don't know. I feel like then. I was totally on board with, like, badass Galadriel as main character, but then I feel like I wanted to feel more emotionally invested in Galadriel, and I feel like the way this role was performed, I did not encourage emotional investment in the character. I... Right, so again, at the risk of just sounding like a man, um, she's a very attractive woman, strikingly pretty woman, um, and she's a, a, a very strong actress, but... I'm going to lean on the side of it being a directorial choice to tell her to stare at everybody when she's not the one. Yes, oh my talking. God, there's so much staring. So there's a few scenes, in particular when it comes to the later episodes, where she is in the scene while two other people are talking. And it's like a lot of fantasy writers use the phrase an eagle stare which implies that the person is really paying attention and is taking in all the detail. Mm-hmm. That's that's her go-to move the entire way through it, is yeah. fixed shoulders, arms slightly behind her, which is a, a weird stance to have, and then mm-hmm. just staring. Now, I'm doing it for Sarah. I and mean, it feels fairly, it's, very it's, military. It's very military. but Which doesn't not make sense, but... And and that too doesn't not make sense. And and there's an aspect of that that I like. I actually kind of like that there's something very military and off-putting about her because I think that's usually something that men get to do that women don't get to do. I just, I think they could have had more moments where maybe she's like in, you know, with like one person where she maybe showed a little bit more kind of like vulnerability and allowed the audience to have more of a kind of sense of emotional connection with the character um but i i don't hate the concept behind that but i think they went a little too hard on it yeah it it, it, like the concept is good just i was gonna say softener a little bit maybe not softener a little bit but calm it down a little like I mean, as I said, I think it's just that, like, I, I think it would be more interesting if you could see that she's not, does not behave the same way with everybody, right? Mm-hmm. That I think that, like, that is a perfectly reasonable way for her to be with, like, people with whom she has a kind of, you know, some sort of hierarchical or relationship or, like, semi-adversarial relationship. I think that's great, but that also... You know, she could have moments where you could see her, like, let her guard... Like, I think there's moments where narratively it seems like she's supposed to be letting her guard down, but she kind of doesn't act like she's letting her guard down. There are a couple of points where she is 
Absolutely. And I'm not going to give the big spoiler from this the first season. And maybe we should save it until the episode. But, but Are we? Because I was going to give that spoiler no, in three minutes. I, yeah, well, I, I can see where you've written what you've written down. And I get what you're I get why you're saying this. But like maybe, yeah, saying it the way it's written there, brilliant. But maybe we shouldn't explain it. But um, there are a couple of points where she is absolutely, and I mean on the verge of getting it on with a particular character. Yes. <laughs> and I'm he was still, a perfectly normal human man. Yeah, he's a perfectly normal human man. That's all and I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Definitely just a human. He's a perfectly he's normal, normal human, human man. Not, nothing different but normal. And at the same time, um, she's also right on the verge of stabbing him in the heart. Um, and it's not because he's just a totally normal human. That's just the way she's playing that character. And it, right. I don't know whether it's meant to be, oh, she's dangerous or she's mysterious, but it just comes across like, she doesn't really know what she's doing. Like, it's a weird Yeah, and it, it seems like they, and it seems like I think they got lost with that character. Um, another casting choice that I have weird feelings about is uh, Robert Aramayo as Elrond. And I find it hilarious that this young, that this young man, has played both the young version of Hugo Weaving. And first of all, it doesn't actually make sense that he, or for that matter, more of the Clark, doesn't actually make sense that they look that much younger no. because that's not really how like elf aging works, but whatever. But fine, you know, it's a shit, whatever. I understand why they went that way. But so he plays, therefore, both the young Hugo Weaving in this and the other thing I have seen him in is as the young Ned Stark in Game of Thrones. And I find this hilarious because he is a very distinctive looking person who does not look anything like either of those two men who also do not look anything like each other. It's a a really random casting choice. When I I did my best not to read anything up about the series beforehand before it was going in. I, I knew what it was based on. I knew Galadriel was in it. I didn't actually realize Elrond was in it. So when he walked on to set or into the screen in the first episode, they said Elrond, and I went, ha, <laughs> two L's with the same name. Because there's no way in my mind I was going, oh, this is meant to be Hugo Weaving. Like, it's just not. And he's okay. But I love his, that your attitude was what a weird coincidence. His direction. also named Elrond. Exactly, but it's just like, because he's definitely not playing the same Elrond and this is why because I get that he's meant to be writing poetry and he's meant to be um, shall we say you know some sort of herald right and that's the position he has in the court so he's not a soldier so he's not going to be as stoic as um, Galadriel but he is so laid back he is so relaxed he is so loose Mm -hmm. in his movements in a way that Elrond is, is not. not. Like, we've seen a lot of Elrond, and we see a lot of Elrond in general in Tolkien canon, in his, in, you know, in Tolkien's actual written canon, as well as in the films. And, like, laid back is not typically how I would describe no. Elrond. And he comes across as very, like, for uh, an elf, he's almost as laid back as Legolas is in the original Lord of the Rings movies, which is too laid back <laughs> like for an elf like he should be a little bit more as you said stoic but as i said i i think he's decent in this it's just you know yeah he's fine he's just yeah he's, he's not given a lot to work with i well when we start talking about his storyline i yeah it's oh, that's that's um, a frustrating yeah oh. the other comment that i will make about the casting i also said this when we did wheel of time 
If you have a problem with the fact that there are Black and other actors of color who are playing hobbits, who are playing elves, etc., if this is a problem for you, you are a racist. Correct. I it's agree 100%. Chill the hell out. Yeah, it, the, the problem, like I said, talking specifically about Wheel of Time, um, there's one of the actors in Wheel of Time I think is shockingly bad, Marcus Rutherford. And I think he's a terrible parent. I don't think he matches the character from the books. I don't even think he's performing what they wanted him to do on the show mm-hmm. particularly well. But it's not because of his skin color. It's because he right. he talks and breeds like this. <sighs> I'm parent. And in this, there are a couple of bad performances. It's nothing to do with the color of the skin. It's nothing to do with anything other than the fact that they're just not particularly great actors and actresses. Um, and actually, I don't think any of them are the people of color. <laughs> I think they are all very yeah. good. It's a few Lenny of Henry the, uh, as Sadak Burroughs, I think, is an excellent performance. I think he's really great. I'll tell you how good Lenny Henry is. Uh, I've, yeah. I, I said this to Sarah at the time. I have been watching Lenny Henry since I was four years old. He's been a staple of British and Irish TV for 40 plus years. And I had watched three episodes before it even twigged with me that that's who Lenny Henry was playing. Yeah, I was no, like, he, I, I, I was not super familiar with him, but yeah, I thought he was really great. Uh, and I also actually, I mean, so in terms of like, I think actually one of the like elf performances that I actually liked best was Ismail Cruz Cordova's Erendir, who I actually thought struck a good balance between that like military stoicism, which feels very elvish in the way Tolkien portrays elves, but that also we see him having these moments of emotional vulnerability. Yeah, and he's... Uh, and he's, I think the actor played it really well. He's a very handsome man, too. He is. He's been very helpful in, in, in his storyline. Um, just a couple of things just before we go on. So we're going to just name characters off here, uh, and if you haven't watched the show, it's not going to make a lot of sense. If you have watched the show, you'll know who they are. But some of these characters are um, the equivalent of Hobbits, because they're distinct from hobbits because they weren't allowed to have the rights for right well so time. they're yeah i mean so yeah they're they're the harfoots who are i mean the the kind of like exact genealogy i feel like is relatively kind of complicated in terms of like do we just see harfoots as like something that's distinct or like as like a different kind of hobbit but that i believe actually that's what they technically are i believe they're technically one of like there are three kinds of, of hobbits, hobbits. Yeah. so the hobbits that we've seen are not harfoots but that they are still well that's because the hobbits that we've seen are hybrids with giant tall men that fall from the sky. <clears throat> that is a possibility. That is a very real possibility. So we, we deal with the Harfoots, who are basically hobbits. We are dealing with the humans, who are living in the Southlands. We have Galadriel uh, and the other elves. And we also have the dwarves. So the dwarves are a major part of this because they are digging underneath the ground for gold and other precious metals, Sarah, because they love those That's precious metals. And uh, and we've got Durin the Fort and his wife, Disa. Yes. And we also have, in addition, the other, you know, what I what I would like to tall, call fancy men is that we also have the men of <laughs> Numenor. The Numenor men. They are fancy men with their amazing they are fancy boats men. that have like a thousand soldiers and their horses, but you never see them because the boats just look like normal boats. And and so, you know, and, and so in particular, right, I mean, we we also know that so, you know, the of the people of the, the Numenorians that we end up spending a lot of time with, this includes uh, Elendil and his son Isildur, who you will likely, you know, have known who Isildur is and how Isildur's story ends up if you are familiar with Lord of the Rings canon. Uh, 
kind of fucks up a bit. Sorry, Isildur. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, that... a couple of things about this. Um, so we also have a character named Halbrand, who's a perfectly normal human. Um, Charlie Vickers plays him yes. and is quite good in the role. Just a perfectly normal human man, nothing at all special or weird about him. But if you knew anything about Lord of the Rings, and we're assuming that anybody who's watching this show has seen the Lord of the Rings movies, then you know Isildur is the leader of the humans when they're fighting the, you know, against Sauron. Um, it, and that Halbrand is not hanging and out. And that Halbrand yes. is not hanging out with him. He's never mentioned. So this idea, and it, it's revealed in like, I think it's the second or third episode, that Halbrand might be the king of the Sightlanders. But we know he's not. <laughs> like, I know, but that could, I mean, in terms of, and the show makes enough departures, right, that that, that could end up going in a, in a number of different directions. Hmm. It could end up being that, of course, it's a perfectly, I mean, obviously he's a perfectly normal human man. Yeah, you know, course, he could yeah. die tragically. Or it could turn out that, what if he's not a perfectly normal human man? Wait, no, Sarah, come on. He's perfectly normal human. I mean, I, that's, a, that's a ridiculous, that's a ridiculous theory. I was just putting it out there as like a really unlikely possibility that obviously isn't what yeah. ends up happening. Now, Sarah might be just uh, very happy with the fact that she did, in fact, say to me in a text message around about the second episode, she was like, I'm not certain if that Halbrand is a perfectly normal human man. And, uh, yeah, and it did. took me another five or six episodes to go, do you know what, Sarah? That thing you said five or six weeks ago, might be true. Mm-hmm. But no, mm-hmm. he's perfectly normal human. Man. But the other thing I wanted to say about Isildur and company in terms of my identification of them professionally as fancy humans, that being the technical term, is that they are fancy humans because they are descended from a union between uh, elves and men. And that they are, there there was like a group of people who fell into this category who got to choose between mortality and immortality. Ooh. Elrond is among these. He chooses immortality, obviously. Uh, but also among these is Elrond's brother, Elros, who chose instead mortality. And that is who Elendil is descended from with the idea basically that they actually get longer lifespans and are, you know, just sort of fancy mm. because they, you know, could have been immortal, but have chosen not to. Uh, also, fun fact, because of this, it is important to note that Aragorn and Arwen are cousins. Yeah, but like long, long distance cousins. They're the type of cousins. <laughs> they're first cousins sixty times yeah, removed. They're the type or of cousins like that. that in certain parts of the United States they just refer to them as legal. Um, that's how they describe that particular marriage. Should we should we start the section that we call the Inumeratio? Indeed. The recap. A shadow of the past. So we start with getting uh, a little bit of backstory about what happens before the main events of these. And so we are introduced to the Dark Lord Morgoth and to his chief servant Sauron, of course, somebody who is very familiar to people who is who are, you know, invested in Tolkien canon. Morgoth would be familiar to you if you have read The Silmarillion, but not if you have just done Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. And Galadriel is after Sauron and... Uh, is, you know, and like, you know, she had like her brother and she liked her brother very much and Sauron killed her brother, etc. Yeah, that's pretty much so, it. We start out with them as children and then it leads to Galadriel being like a, a, a gruff, angry older lady um, who's going after Sauron. Older because, lady? She's like 25. I mean, as in older than she was in the beginning. And yes. she's going after Sauron who had killed her brother. She is almost, shall we say, uh, 
um, obsessed with it. Yes, and she's obsessed to a point where basically everybody thinks that she is being unreasonable. And so she, you know, finds this, you know, symbol that she thinks is like, this is a sign that we're on the right track. We need to keep moving. We need to keep searching. And her whole company basically mutinies against her. And so they have to return home. Basically, she has to either return home or she has to basically, you know, kind of take off on her own, which is also, you know, in issue in terms of like the whole you know following orders thing that i guess one is supposed to do as a military commander yeah like i mean that's basically what is going on here they rebel against her um because she is too driven and as you said before we have watched tons of tv series and movies where a male character has this drivenness and it's never seen as a problem she's like oh he's focused he's he's driven like john wick kills 55 mm-hmm. people because you know they yeah. hurt his dog which is you know again they hurt his dog which is correct it, right? as a correct, response yes. to but, be fair um nobody goes oh that john wick he's a bit of a ball buster isn't he like whereas that's what people were saying about oh galadriel why is she such a ball buster like nobody would like her nobody would follow her but i mean they would <laughs> because she's a very good warrior they would absolutely like she's very and she's like very driven in a way that is absolutely you can see being very compelling you can also get the side of like we have been wandering in the snow with no reason to think that we are doing anything useful for a very long time yeah it's got to be years that she has been driving the north yeah yeah, so, and they go back home where the king at Gilgalad is like, yeah, the war is over, everybody just chill. Yeah. Essentially. Um, and again, straight, straight away, like, <laughs> this dude comes across so fishy. Like, yeah, it, it, as soon he as really he was does. on, I'm thinking, all right, now this guy is in league with Sauron and definitely not somebody right. else, but definitely Sauron he's in league with. It, like, he just gives sinister vibes and there's no reason for him to give sinister vibes. Like, right. everything is going well as far as he is concerned. And Galadriel is a little bit over the top and a little bit overzealous. So, realistically, he doesn't need to come across as duplicitous as he does. But it really feels no. like, oh, second, he's doing something dirty here. He's getting rid of Galadriel. Why is he getting rid of Galadriel? Um, but he gives her the honor of sailing to Valinor, where she gets to live eternal life in peace. Yes. Yay! <laughs> and we think this is the end of Galadriel, but as we will shortly see, it is not. So we also, in this episode, we uh, meet the elf Erendir and the human healer Bronwyn. They have a lot of sexual tension uh, are both very pretty people. And uh, so basically, Erendir is there because there is this elvish garrison that is basically keeping an eye on this village or this kind of area in the Southlands that is mostly inhabited by people who had many, many years back, uh, or, by, or by the descendants of people who many years back had been in league with Morgoth. And so they're like, all right, you got to keep an eye on these people. And we get the first sense in this episode that not everything is well in this area, that we find this village that has been destroyed. And Bronwyn's son, Theo, finds a sword that has the mark of Sauron, yeah, he, or broken, a broken sword, not a good sword. Bronwyn and Arendir have clear sexual tension. Everybody in the village seems to know this. And Theo oh, yeah. bears a striking resemblance to Arendir. And <laughs> You're not wrong. Like, I'm not sure whether they... Maybe Bronwyn just has a type. She might just have a type, but I mean, come on, like, <laughs> there's not. A, I'm from a small village, a small country village. There is no way that this would be happening. That that child would exist, and nobody would go, hmm, 
wonder if it's the elf's son. But, like, that's... I mean, maybe he hasn't been there that long. I mean, because also, like, Oh, he's they're... been there for years. I mean... That's what it said. He's... Their vibe... Their vibe is that they have tension, but that they... Their vibe is tension that they have not had sex. I I think their vibe is that they did have sex about Oh, I totally disagree. I feel like their... I totally disagree. I feel like their vibe is that they, like, really will... They really want to have sex and have not had sex. No, I... I well, sorry. Not no, because I, I have no <clears throat> facts in this. Um, I think Arendir hit that and then told her... No, my duties as an elf forbid me from Damn. this. Damn, you think Erendir hit that and quit that? He hit it and quit it, but then is like, I want to hit that again because she's a very attractive <laughs> lady. Um, and you know, it just, it just, I'm getting those vibes that Theo is his kid. I think Bronwyn's just got a type. Well, we'll we'll find out in the second season. <laughs> we will see that that is not revealed. Uh, Galadriel is like almost at Valinor and is like nah and jumps off the boat and goes back home and swims back like she's at the point where she's walking into the light and then and she's you like see, yeah you see the light you see the light you're like ooh the light and then other people are like what Galadriel what are you doing and then she's in the water swimming you're like yeah <laughs> who didn't see that coming so yeah Galadriel is swimming home and the other big thing that happens in the episode is that we've uh, we've met these people who are the the Harfoots, this uh, species of hobbit who are uh, nomadic, right? They seem to have like, or they seem to have kind of like an area as opposed to like the hobbits who are very shire bound and who are very kind of settled that we saw in Lord of the Rings. The Harfoots, as presented here, in contrast, uh, seem like they they have a kind of seasonal migration yeah. situation and are about to begin their migration. And at this point, Nori Brandyfoot and Poppy Proudfellow uh, basically go and look at a meteor crater, and inside this meteor crater is a dude. Yeah, just a tall bearded just a big, dude. Tall bearded, um, sexually attracted to short people, dude. And um, he's just in there. He's just in this big crater, and there's like loads of fire and stuff. And he, they saw a, a shooting star, and they're like, oh, "Let's follow it. Let's see where this is." And they see this dude. Now, um, get this dude. I almost said they were hunter gatherers. I don't think they're hunters. I think they're just gatherers. Um, and I'm assuming that th- that they are the precursors or in some way linked to the hobbits that end up in the Shire, because rather than um, rather than move from place to place to place, the hobbits in the Shire have clearly found a place which is safe, protected, and have settled into a non-nomadic life. They, put their, they start farming, and they start living off the land there, whereas these guys are mm-hmm. 100%, as you said, seasonal travellers. They're they're migrating from mm-hmm. one spot to spot, one spot to another, uh, avoiding animals, avoiding other humans. Like we get, like we first hear them mentioned when two men are just walking that tank, going, "Oh, you might see a harfoot. Ah, there's no such thing as a harfoot. Ah, they're real now, there, boy. Like with their eyes which is kind them. of the attitude that humans have toward hobbits mm-hmm. in uh, in Lord of the Rings in general, right? They're like, "What's that? Like you're you're a real thing? How huh? weird!" Yeah. Also, the hobbits have Irish accents, and um, it's a. Uh, Mildly infuriating, uh, but that's how we do. Uh, <laughs> and then we get on to episode two, Adrift. Oh, wait, 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 sir, maybe we should just say, how did you, did you like the first episode? Did you think it was a good start to the show? I did, actually. I was, I was intrigued. I definitely, as we'll talk about, right, the show does not move speedily. No. 
But I think in that first episode, I think they kind of seeded enough things that I was definitely intrigued and wanted to know more. Yeah. I, which is, I think, the goal of a first episode. Yeah, I'd agree. I enjoyed it. Um, this came out at roughly the same time as the Game of Thrones prequel, uh, House of the Dragon. and in, I have not watched that and do not want to. Oh, um, I, <laughs> right. I think it's excellent. I think it's a really good show. Uh, and I think it's really well done. And I think they have not leaned into what I thought they were going to lean into, okay. which is what the later seasons of the Game of Thrones series did, which is we have to have violence, like super violence every week and super sexy right. stuff all the time. And while there is both violence and sexy stuff in this, it, it really is more of a character drama and it feels a lot. And I, again, this is why a lot of people were complaining about the House of the Dragon show is way more of a soap opera than the original Game of Thrones season ever was. So I, I genuinely think you will enjoy it if you if you give it a chance. Okay. But in comparison... Yeah. I feel like there was just like a few things that I heard about right away that I was just like, come on. Yeah. But I have a lot of grumpiness yep, about... No, I, I agree. I, I was not... Things. I was not entered like planning to watch them at all just somebody at work had mentioned it to me i was like all right i'll give the first episode a chance it gripped me the first episode of the series like i really need to see the second episode okay whereas the first episode of this i was intrigued i was interested but i was also sitting there going as a self-contained mini story arc galadriel's arc is so blatantly obvious what's going to happen that I felt like yeah. I felt a little bit cheated because it didn't feel like it was a big choice for her at the end. She didn't seem happy at any stage with the decision. No, I mean it was pretty. So it was, I mean, and also we know who Galadriel exactly. is, and so like we know she doesn't run so off and it just ditch felt Miller telegraphed her. to me. And because of mm-hmm. that, I was like, ah, oh, come on over. And then the Harfoots, um, they are so tw- like they are painfully twee. Um, and everything, everything's nice and oh, oh I've got the berries oh, look at them oh, that's look, always right true of hobbits the berries and it's all on my face right and you again that's you, always true of hobbits that they just like they, they like food and they're nice and they're chill that's the point of hobbits again Sarah I, I'm not attacking Tolkien I know he's your hero um, no uh, <laughs> it's true um, the point of hobbits is that they have a perfectly reasonable and intense attitude toward food which is fine and I also have both of those things but what I'm getting across here is at that point i was thinking that they were leaning too hard into it we'll talk about this as we go along there were definitely some fan moments on in this series which were clearly aimed at people who were lord of the rings fans as Mm -hmm. like just i just felt that little bit too much like fan service i suppose maybe you'd call it Mm -hmm. and the stuff about the hobbits like oh we really like my food and oh we're gonna and everything's like twee and sweet and stuff like this here and i just felt in similar way to watching the hobbit movies just felt like yes the lord of the rings movies were excellent and really well done don't do a bad version of them and a little bit of this felt like a little bit of a bad version it felt like a little bit of like somebody had seen the scene set in the shire in the fellowship of the ring and tried to imitate them but didn't quite manage it i i see that i i thought the harfoots worked but i i see where you're coming from uh we need to move faster it is so 
Galadriel swims back to Middle Earth uh, or swims part of the way, ends up like kind of grabbing onto, you know, this shipwreck where she meets and bonds with a perfectly normal human man named Talbrand. Just a perfectly normal human. Yeah. Nothing weird about him Especially at all. Especially since he's from his the name is He's just a normal, normal man. Halbrand. You know, that normal name that everyone would have. I mean, it's Middle Earth. How, like, come on. And that's, that's not in no, itself. I'm, having a, it, I'm not having it there. It's 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 not even normal for Middle Earth. It doesn't make any sense. I disagree Halbrand. on that actually. It, it, it might as well be saying, "Hey, I'm a big long spear with a pike on the end of it." Yeah, that seems like a thing that you would have in Middle Earth. I'm gonna name that after my child. <laughs> my child after that weapon over there. But I'll stick an end in there. Ooh. That's my. That's what I'm going to name my perfectly normal human child. Yeah. Uh, so they're bonding. They survive a storm. Uh, meanwhile, Nori and Poppy are keeping the stranger secret from the Harfoots and feeding him. He still doesn't really talk, but they're kind of trying to communicate with him. They do this thing where they're kind of like give him some, like showing him some fireflies, and he kind of uses this magic to be like try to tell them that he's looking for this particular constellation or set of constellations. And after he does this, the fireflies die. So we have this kind of way in which the this stranger is like not giving the va. I don't think personally to me ever gives the vibe of being evil or sinister, but that you, I think he's supposed to, and I don't think that's totally successful. Like I think he's supposed to seem potentially sinister. I don't think he ever seems sinister. I think he seems dangerous in the sense that he has power that he doesn't understand how to use. And that's inherently dangerous, but that's not the same as sinister. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I don't think he's, right. So, he there's a definite character there who's just like a definite human man, right? And then this character, just this stranger, nothing they're trying him. to imply that it's Sauron. Like, that's what they're doing. They're trying to say, yeah. this guy is Sauron. He's a stranger, but look at his, ma- look at the magic he's got. Look like at he's... his kind of sinister, dangerous yeah. magic. Like, he brings death. At the time, I was, um, as I was reading it, or sorry, as I was watching this, I read somebody saying, maybe they're trying to imply that this is Sauron, right? But Saruman wouldn't have been evil at this point. He wouldn't have had right. any connection to it. So there, like this idea that he could accidentally hurt somebody or he's got these evil powers, like it's not like Saruman doesn't wouldn't have that at this time. So they're trying. The show is going out of the way to say this is Saruman, but the car- the way the guy is showing this, like he's a nice character. He's a nice man. He, he seems cares nice. about... He seems like he's trying. Maybe a little bit too much about these short ladies who've been looking after him. And the other thing I will note with this character is I already at this point, I'm like, cool, it's Gandalf. And the reason I am 100% convinced, which I will say is never... Even at the end of this first season, I would say is seated, but not 100% unequivocally stated. Mm-hmm. I thought it was obvious from the beginning. And the reason I think it's obvious from the beginning, unless we're doing a huge departure, which has, I think, you know, not that I think Tolkien is Bible, but that I do think has somewhat problematic implications, is that I think it is very clear that of these kind of great powers in the world, the only one of them that totally seems to recognize that hobbits exist and that they could be valuable or important is Gandalf. Yeah. And so I think the only character that it would make any sense for him to have this kind of you know, connection forged with the hobbits, I think Gandalf is the only way for that to make any sense. Yeah, and he is absolutely forming a connection with those hobbits. Oh, he is uh, forging a connection. He is forging a connection. Again, we warned you beforehand, but he is forging <laughs> that connection. Um, so 
Speaking of forging. Speaking of, we get to... (laughs) That's actually pretty good. Transitions. Uh, Gilgalad sends Elrond to go and chat with Celebrimbor, who's the elven smith, and they're trying to build a fancy new forge. And uh, Elrond is like, hey, you like forges? Have you ever talked to the dwarves? They're good at forges. And... It is, like, the way Sarah has just described that, that's literally what it is. Hey, have you ever talked to the dwarves? Ooh, I never thought of that. I know I've been a master, uh, a master smith for perhaps millions of years at this point, because I'm an elf and do not die, but tell me more about these dwarves. And so he's got a dwarf buddy. And so he goes to see if he can make friends, if he can, like, get some help from his dwarf buddy, who is Prince Doran. And Doran basically says, go fuck yourself. And they, like, do this, like, rock smashing contest. And in this rock smashing contest, uh, Elrond loses. But, you know, they kind of is like, hey, can we, like, chat on the way out? We find out the reason that Doran is mad is because uh, Elrond, because elves understand time differently, Elrond, like, forgot his wedding and missed the birth of his two children and is like, oops. (laughs) Yeah. And Elrond, and this is where I think the actor does a bad job. Because I think he's good in general. But in this bit... He doesn't convey that he's upset that he missed that. He's like, oh, well, you know, I, it never occurred to me. I was like, dude, all you need to say is, oh, I'm actually gutted I missed that. I am genuinely sad right. and sorry that I missed that. But he's try- he's still trying too hard to be elfish and yeah. aloof. And it doesn't make sense because the two of them are trying to establish that they, 20 years ago they had this, like, great friendship hanging around together mm-hmm. buddy buddy and suddenly it's like mm, yeah well i'm not even going to like i'm going to say the words oh i'm sorry but i'm never going to put any emotion into it or make it sound like i actually right. care and while Duran is you know clearly throwing a little bit of a, a fit here over mm-hmm. over the fact that his friend like th- he's also a long-lived person so 20 years isn't overly yeah. long for somebody to have missed out on, on being or thing. I get it, it's a long time, but it's not the longest of times. And he does really have a, a very pouty response to it. Um but we also get to meet And also like his wife is basically like you're being ridiculous, yeah. like uh, chill. I just wanted to bring up that his wife got a ton of hate the actress because she is a black dwarf and for some reason this goes against everything that people stand for and Tolkien stood for, blah, 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 blah. She is uh, the best performance in every episode she's in. She's absolutely fantastic. And I think she's also, like, of of the, like, original characters, she's another one who I think is, like, a really successful character. And also, like, I personally have been complaining for years about the fact that they're, like, God forbid anybody acknowledges that there are any women dwarves. Fuck that. Absolutely fuck that. (laughs) Um... (coughs) And so I think the fact that, like, we actually have, like, a dwarf woman is awesome. And I think she's awesome and she does a great job. And I actually think that, I think their relationship, Disa and Doran's relationship, is actually, I think, like, one of the best, like, chemistry 
in yeah. the show. You totally, like, you totally believe them awesome. as a loving husband and wife. And yeah. in a couple yeah. of other episodes we're going to talk about in a second, um, she covers for him a few times. And you believe it. You believe that she's trying her best to cover for him. And like, even though she likes Elrond, she's, you know, cool with it. She's, she's a good, yeah. supportive partner. As opposed to yeah. a lot of these shows would have her be mildly shrewish. And she's not. Mm-hmm. She's nice. Yeah, no. I would. I, mean, yeah. I wish I'd have married her. <laughs> yeah, same. She's great. Let's all marry her. Disa. One one person that you should marry in this show. <laughs> I mean, you know, or I know you could go for Halbrand, the perfectly normal human man. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's only there's anything weird about him. Yeah, because I mean, he, you know, I'm not sure he's nice. That seems nice, that nice all the time, but he's just a perfectly normal human so man. So himself and Galadriel um, saved uh, from a monster attack in episode two, but we we start episode three with them. So what happens in episode three, Sarah? They get picked up by a ship, and that ship is captured is captained by a man named Elendil. Who, ta- who, is, who takes them to Numenor, the island of fancy men. They are very I fancy men. Be calling them. And essentially the, the Numenorians and the elves used to be good buddies, but the elves and the Numenorians are currently not good buddies. And, in, and at the moment, uh, basically Galadriel is like, we need to all go back to Middle-earth and fight Sauron and Muriel, who is the queen regent, who, fun fact, I have not seen the actress in anything, but she did grow up exactly where I grew up. Mm. And uh, she is like, no, we're absolutely not doing that. <laughs> Um, this is also, I will say, in Numenor is one of our uh, fun moments in this show where archival research is crucial to the plot, which <laughs> I will talk about later. <laughs> uh, and so that she's visiting uh, Numenor's Hall of Lore and fi- and like finds something that has something that she recognizes as this mark of Sauron that she found in that like ice fortress thing in the first episode. And she realizes that this is actually a map of the Southlands and that essentially it's like Sauron's plot to make a like new evil, cool fancy kingdom. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, I'm I'm, I'm going to save what I what I want to say about this episode until the end. So. Yeah, and also that Halbrand, the perfectly normal human man, is uh, she is becomes convinced that he is the king of the Southlands, which makes sense because he is a perfectly normal human man, and some mm-hmm. perfectly normal human men are kings. And he's got a little bag with a symbol on it. And he does, and that symbol is associated with the kings of the Southlands, and so since he couldn't possibly be anything other than a perfectly normal human mm-hmm. man, he must just be a perfectly normal human man who's a king. Yeah, but he's really good at fighting. Obviously. He is. He's very good at fighting. Uh, I think this is, yes, this is the episode where he like does this weird thing where he is like chatting with some Numenorians and is kind of trying to make nice with them and then decides that the best way to like get into this like guild that he wants to get in, in, into is just to like steal their guild medallion. Yeah. And then they're like, dude, no. And then he beats them up yeah. quite intensely. He is meant to, so he wants to be a smith and he says, look, I'm here. I want to do something. I want to be useful. I'm good. And one of the smiths says, listen, I'm delighted that you want to try and make something of yourself. Yes, we. I would give you a job, but we're all members of the guild. And then later on, he's drinking. These guys come over and are being dicks to him. So it's one of those things we're like, oh, well, they were dicks to him first, but he does steal their guild badge. So then when they come around and they go to beat him up, yeah, they're in the wrong for, you know, six men against one in an alleyway. 
but he did steal the kilt badge for them. He does, yeah. And he is an outlander. And he, but again, it's one of those situations where you're like, ah, well, we're supposed technically to be following Halbrand at this point. So he's the good guy, and these bad guys have been picking on him, and he did deserve everything to get. But he breaks arms and legs and heads he and stuff. He is and, brutal. Yeah. There is a level, there is an intense level of brutality, which I think was about when I started being like, is he a perfectly normal human man? Yeah, this is around about the time where you text me, you're like, I think there's something up about that lad. Yep. That's her yep. exact phrase. I know it sounds very Irish, but she's been hanging around with me. <laughs> That's definitely how I phrase something it. Up, something up with um, that lad. Uh, we also get some updates on the Harfoots. They're getting ready for their migration. The stranger basically there. So Nori helps the stranger sneak in or like help. They like sneak in and help and So like help him be able to kind of like look at some star maps that belong to uh, Sadok, who is the leader of their of their group. And that he, he ends up kind of getting getting revealed to the to the group. And everybody is. A lot of people are less than happy about what is the situation with this, like, weird tall dude. And uh, they basically end up saying, like, okay, so, like, you can come on the migration. He can also, I guess, come on the migration. But, like, it ends up being this thing that so Nori's father has been injured and he is uh, put in the back. Mm-hmm. And this is okay. So the other thing that I think is really fascinating about the Harfoots is that the attitude of the Harfoots absolutely seems to be, yeah, if you fall during the migration, you're just dead now. Sorry, it's goodbye. It's such a weird thing. Yeah, you fall, you fell behind. Good luck. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. Like, and I mean, it's it's strangely cold. Um, but he he's going with them, and he's there able is a to... surprising kind of lack of like care like the sense is basically like if you get injured that's on you yeah, right that her dad gets injured through you know basically the stranger being a little bit strange and not knowing their ways and there's a, yeah there's like a, well doing some kind of like weird magic that yeah. then like ends up and well, father wolf, like breaking an or something along those lines and yeah and then basically um the, the dad gets injured because he falls off something and um but you know because they had the stranger in the back he's two times as big as anybody else. I don't know why they didn't think about this. Maybe we'll have the really giant dude push our cart because he's a giant right. man. But um, he is a big yeah. dude and he pushes the cart for him, which is fine. Um, and then we cut to Aaron Deer, um, our black elf friend who's been hanging out with the humans, probably banging Bronwyn, though certain people don't believe this because they believe in like true love or something. Waiting, um, waiting to bang no, Bronwyn. He absolutely, he absolutely did that. Um, so Aaron Deer has been captured by the orcs. I just, I just don't. I think it is a pre-sex sexual tension. Sarah, I will die on this hill. I, 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 listen, I believe that you think it's pre-sex sexual tension. I think it's post-sex, possibly sex again, sexual tension. Um, so Aaron Deer uh, has captured the orcs. He's captured by orcs um, when he was down trying to figure out what had caused all the death in the village. Uh, the orcs... Um, are having them dig tunnels underneath the ground because we know orcs can't be um, exposed to the sun. Um, and uh, basically, uh, him and his elven buddies, there was three, I think there's three of them get captured and they try to escape and two yeah. of them get killed. And he is then told, no, 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 no. Well, you, there's this whole thing about like refusing to, to cut to down a, a tree. Blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, you do cut down a tree. Yeah. I'm not going to cut down a tree. He's like, I'll cut down a tree. He's like, we get yeah. it, dude. You like trees, but come on. It's, you know, trees. Um, and then uh, Aaron Deer, you know, um, gets told, we're going to talk to you, have you talk to Adar, uh, who is like the leader of the orcs. Yes. So, 
episode four. Wait, well, before that, I just want to say about this oh. episode. Um, this is where the show started to lose me a little because mm-hmm. I was mildly intrigued. I was interested. And then we get to Numenor and it feels too much like they're attempting to have, this is where we're going to have intrigue. This is where there's something going mm-hmm. on. And, you know, not everybody on Numenor is welcoming of elves. Why have they fallen out with the elves? And then some of the people are talking about, we'll never be the elves slaves again. These people were never the elves slaves. No, that seemed like a weird... I, the Numenor stuff is actually the stuff that I kind of think is the weakest yes, in terms of like, I... It. I feel like they're really trying to do this kind of deep dive on Numenorean politics and they're not actually properly explaining what the situation is with Numenorean politics and exactly why some of them are so like bitter about the elves and it doesn't seem like there's a reason for them to be so bitter about the elves. And yeah, and so, yeah. But just the, the way that they react to Galadriel being there and being an elf. and They're big mad about they're, it. They're, they're big mad about it. They're mad with Elendil for bringing her in. So he finds two people floating in the middle of the ocean, brings them in, and the queen is looking at him like, what sort of a fuckwit are you? All of the senators are like, look at this dumbass. How did you bring this elf into her thing? As if she's going to just walk in and go, "Mm, yeah, you're my slaves again. And again, these people were never enslaved by the elves. So it just doesn't ring true. Like, I get that there's this talk about we failed them at some point. What did we do? And there's... Well, hold on a second. She's not actually the queen. She's the queen regent mm. because her dad is up there asleep. And again, we'll get to the dad reveal and what's going on with him later on. He just, spoiler alert, he's got Alzheimer's. I, I can't yeah. imagine that this is the first time that somebody has had Alzheimer's at some stage. And people like kings and queens will have been living longer than most people because they'll have had the best of medical treatments and, you know, have lived pampered lives. So the likelihood is that that was going to affect the royalty on in these kind of nations yeah. much more often than it was going to affect your average peasant who was dying at 40, right? So, or the peasants are not actually dying at 40. This is a, this is my Sarah, major, this is a major pet peeve of mine. I know the average is brought down by high infant mortality. Okay, I know I was just <laughs> trying to go to you into getting a reaction and it worked, but um, what I'm getting at is it's there's no way this is the first time, especially for people like the Numenor, where this is the first time they've ever heard about this, but it's treated like, yeah. oh my god. The king is like this. Yeah. It's not the first time they've gone through this. And Yeah, because they're like weird and secretive about it, right? Exactly. They're yeah, keeping him hidden. You're like, people are gonna know. Like people are gonna recognise, listen, he's lost he's lost a little bit. And even if she doesn't want to usurp him in some way, she, so or she would see it as usurping, even if she was just to leave him up there, keep him hidden. That's what's causing the senators and the people in the streets to talk about, well, we haven't seen the king in three years and you know she's just assumed power like whisper 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 like that's the kind of thing where it leads to whispers where it's just come out and said listen he's kind of lost his marbles a little bit realistically we should have a new queen right now why wouldn't she be the first choice like even if they wanted to go to some sort of democracy she would still have a lot of the potential votes there right but does this Undertaker secrecy, and it fe- I was going to say it feels Game of Thronesy, but because there's nobody stabbing each other in the back, it doesn't. It feels like a bad attempt to represent Greek politics and intercity mm. politics 
from yeah. that period like as in what was going on in Athens at the time of mm-hmm. the, the Greek Empire or whatever so that's what right. it feels like to me and it doesn't feel particularly strong and it feels almost I, I, I'm gonna hazard that badly written yeah and in in general I would say yes as I said I find I found the Numenor stuff definitely to be to be the weakest because we just in general I feel like we we don't get a good sense of what's actually behind the political intrigue um, we do get a little more in the next episode where it turns out that there's this like whole thing where there's like a vision that Muriel has that had that she then is able to show Galadriel and Appellantir of the destruction of Numenor and it's like a, this destruction by a tidal wave and that it has something to do with like elves showing up or something. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that's... But like nobody else has seen that. So it's not like that makes sense in terms of like why everybody else is so damn grumpy about yeah, the elves. That's what so, I'm saying. Know, so everyone else seems to hate the elves and we failed them once before and we're not going to fail them again by not letting them anywhere near us. But the, it, that logic doesn't make any sense. Like we're embarrassed that we failed you. So we're going to ban you from our country. Like that's effectively the logic that right. they're doing. Um, so as you said, the next episode is called The Great Wave, which starts with Muriel having a vision. A vision which she had seen at some stage by putting her hand on a palantir, which is another one of those things where I was going to say, like, there's no reason to have a palantir in Numenor or have them have this vision beyond just saying, ooh, remember that thing from Lord of the Rings? It's here and it's right. given dark visions. And, right, so yeah. I, again, if you could, and especially you also because it sends sort of like messy, right? Because I feel like there's this, you know, question that gets ra- that gets raised about like, okay, so the Palantir, I mean, in Lord of the Rings, right? Of like the Palantir, like, does it actually show what's true? Or is it just so kind of um, being controlled, like controlled essentially by Sauron? But I don't think there's necessarily any reason to think that that's what's going on at this stage with the Palantir because... Well, as far as we have, we have no idea if we Sauron don't know. has Sauron a Sauron could be dead here. for all we know. Um, yeah, we have we have no idea. There's no Sauron here. There's just some perfectly normal human men. Um, <laughs> just so. in, in the last episode, they discovered just a symbol of Sauron is actually from a map. And it's just, I, I was genuinely laughing uh, going, has Galadriel never seen a map? Um, because surely if she just like turns it around and is like oh, oh, oh there's the symbol surely that's a mountain that's a mountain that's not two oh. triangles randomly floating there with a line going into them it's a river and a mountain wow <laughs> uh, yeah but I said so also, this episode yeah. starts with the great wave vision of Muriel and yes. what was annoying me about it is she attributes it to elf involvement there is nothing in her vision that says anything about elves it's just a giant wave coming at Numenor and there's no way to know what it's triggered by and then Galadriel is like what if it's actually saying that like you have to help me instead of not helping me and Mariel's just like oh yeah good call whatever (laughs) yeah she changes her mind so quickly (laughs) yeah Uh, so you know uh, meanwhile, Arendir is uh, has me has met Adar. So, who is this uh, this leader who seems like he is um, some sort of like corrupted elf? Yeah, he could situation. be a Sauron. Could be a Sauron. And I was like, I mean, I was like, is it Sauron? And then I'm like, nah, it's too easy. <laughs> 
Like, there's no way we, like, meet Sauron and he's, like, a dude who's just obviously, like, an evil dude, but he doesn't seem like he's, like, that powerful of an evil dude and is being called somewhat something else. I was like, eh, it's probably not yeah. Sauron, I guess, and, whatever. And that's basically what we've we've got in this first season is we know Sauron is out there somewhere and they are trying to imply mm-hmm. that Sauron is Adar. They are trying to imply that Sauron could be um, Teo, um, Bronwyn's son. Um, as in like a reborn version of him. Like a reincarnation, yeah, a reincarnation of Sauron, of right? Because he gets this thing and he gets stabbed accidentally in the arm and like blood is used to do stuff and all the, like, oh, he's got powerful blood, all this sort of and he's probably elf blood in him. Um, we're led to believe it could be the stranger who is hanging out with the Harfoots and we're definitely not led to believe in any way, shape or form that it's the perfectly normal human man who's been hanging out with uh, um, Galadriel the entire time. No, why would it be a perfectly normal human man? He's just a perfectly normal human man. He's definitely not Sauron. Absolutely. 100%. It couldn't possibly be. But anyway, that's for another day. So what happens in the rest of this episode, Sarah? And we also have the bit where uh, we find out all the fun things that are happening with the dwarves. It turns out the dwarves have found and are mining Mithril, and they are keeping this a secret, but Elrond sees that they are doing this. Uh, and uh, then there, and that there, you know, also seem to be kind of issues in terms of the actual excavation process. There are, you know, mine collapses, etc. And uh, in addition, that we also have a sense, right, that there, that Durin the Third, um, Prince Durin's father, is also concerned about like what do these elves really want, and uh, you know, basically like is trying to send Prince Doran off to chat with uh, Celebrimbor. Yeah, so Celebrimbor um, wants to build something. He wants to forge a better connection with the land or whatever. Not not that we're saying that that's a bad thing or could lead to some sort of hidden extra ring being formed at some stage, right? But he wants to do this and he needs extra hot... Um, he needs extra hot uh, forges, basically, to be able to melt what he's going to do. Now, this is what kind of annoyed me about the show as well, is Mithril, um, which we get it. Like, yes, it's Mithril. It's he, very nice. It's very nice and it's lovely. And we, we had the Mithril armor and all this sort of stuff uh, in The Lord of the Rings. But this just feels like a little bit, oh, it's this magic thing. It's this super special thing that we, we've discovered. Yeah. But it's also the fact that the Elrond stuff, the Celebrimbor stuff, is completely separate from this. Mithril, they would have been doing all of this without Mithril. So they would have been attempting everything they're yeah. attempting without Mithril. But by the time we get to the end of the next episode, Mithril is the most important thing in the world to the elves. And they have to go... like. Um, Elrond is... Which doesn't really make sense. sense. And which is kind of out of... Like, the level of magic, as opposed to just, this is great, of Mithril... Yes. ...is... It's just that it suddenly becomes... It doesn't work for me. ...everything. Even though they had all of these things in motion before the Mithril was ever... They knew anything about it. So... Right. I mean, and also, the other thing with the Mithril is that the... I don't know, it just also seemed like this, like, weird move in some ways, in that, like, the... There's all of this stuff canonically, right, about, like, the dwarves as being, like, very into Mithril and of, like, the mining of Mithril. The elves, like, think that it's very nice. Yeah, that's it. Uh, right? I mean, like, it's... And it is useful. It is functional. It is special. 
But is it the one thing that will save the race of the elves? Spoiler alert for something we get into more detail in a couple of episodes. But that also came out of nowhere. Because as I said, no. nothing, oh, no. the first three episodes storyline of Celebrimbor and, um, and Elrond have nothing to do with Mithril. And then suddenly it's like, right. oh, oh, we need the Mithril. You have to give us the Mithril. I mean, if, if we don't have the Mithril, this thing we didn't know existed we will be wiped out. We'll have to leave. We'll all yeah. be dead. So where did this come yeah. from? What were you planning to do beforehand? Just make yeah. some rings? Like... Yeah. <laughs> it's it's such a bizarre was, choice. And I get it because Mithril is something in the, the books and it's right. mentioned. And that, like you like throw a... Like you throw some Mithril at a leaf and it like fixes the leaf. Like what? Yeah. That doesn't even make sense. Like, because well, Mithril, it's, it's so special and magical and pretty. It must have done that. It doesn't fix leaves. <laughs> yeah, pick a card, will you? Pick a card. Any card. I have no idea what's going on here. It's just that uh, this started going on to... Oh! <laughs> uh, it's because what it heard was me going, it's some sort of special magic being really pretty. Magic? <laughs> yeah, and I was trying to get me to pick a card. No, thank you, Bixby. Uh, I'm going to have to shut this off. I don't even know how it got turned on because I never used that. So there we go. Done. I'll be cutting all of that out, Sarah. Okay, so we've got more as we kind of move into our next episode. We have uh, more fun interactions between the stranger and Nori. And uh, he actually, like, he protects her. He saves her from some wolves and he hurts himself. And here's his arm and then is like trying to, he's like got this like ice that he's conjuring and is trying to heal himself. And then Nori kind of like touches him and basically it like shocks her and she's like freaked out and she's like, oh, maybe, maybe you are terrible. Yeah. She touches him and like it shocks her in just like the sheer sexual tension and energy that passes between them um but yeah it yeah. ends she ends up getting hurt but she also she sees the power that he's got inside of him she's like oh my god this guy might be actually evil i'm terrified of him now but also yeah a little bit turned on just a little turned on the danger is sexy the sinister danger <laughs> the is sinister sex. very giant sexy man <clears throat> Back in Numenor, they're, you know, about to go on this expedition. Halbrand, the perfectly normal human man, is like, I don't need to go on this expedition. And then Galadriel's like, don't you want to come on this, ex- on this, like, on this um, expedition? And he's like, yeah, I will, as a perfectly normal human man who's like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll be, like, king of the Southlands, whatever. I'm just a perfectly normal human guy. Yeah, it, it, and that's fine. It, there's a subplot here where we've got some senators, and one of them has been plotting to he wants the elves to be involved because he wants it to go badly so that then he can go well i warned you about the elves muriel's bad i can now rise to power and yet his son despite having this explained to him still then decides you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna blow up some of those ships making it harder for them to go with the elf and you're like that doesn't make right. any sense your dad explicitly said we should vote for this we want this to happen. We want it to go badly. But no, 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 no. Farzan does it. But because Isildur, who was out of favor because he, you know, did some bad stuff and didn't like didn't finish his uh, training, um, 
he uh, prevents him and then he gets himself a spot in the guard so he gets to go as a soldier um, himself and his three buddies who had also been kicked out of um, the uh, what were they training to be sailors I think yeah they're like the the sea guard it's called the sea guard yeah so he they got kicked out of the sea guard because of stuff that Isildur had done um, but now he's they're, they're all back and they're going to be soldiers so they're going to go with uh, his dad and Halbrand and Galadriel on the ship and there's also on the ship just a nice spot where people can go and stand and have a nice private conversation despite the fact there's a thousand people on the boat and it happens a yeah, couple of times during this episode and the next episode yeah uh, this is also where we get a lot of the like details about like Mithril and like why Mithril is important and that it's going to like save the lives of the elves and that whole situation. Yeah, where Gil Galad, uh, the seriously dodgy king of the elves, is like, hmm, maybe I've already known about this mithril stuff. Mm, did you think about that? Mm, maybe, maybe I do. And maybe that's why I sent you there in the first place. No, you didn't. That's not at all. Like, this was a complete random discovery. That has nothing to do with why you sent them there in the first place, Gilgalad. And it's not about the elves dying, because this is the first mention we've had of the elves dying. Right. So, you know. And then in the Southlands, uh, we also learn that some of the villagers have decided, actually, you know what seems fun? Joining Sauron, or I mean, Adar and Waldrig thinks that Adar is Sauron, and certainly it's like, oh, you're obviously like, this is like Sauron's side, and we want to like be friends with Sauron's side. Um, and uh, Theo also then gives the broken sword to Erendir, and uh, they're trying to like figure out what to do with this, because they think it is some sort of like key to like make the Southlands into Sauron's cool fancy new domain yeah so they're all the humans are, are hanging out so bronwyn is basically holding them together and they're hanging out in this old watchtower that the elves had um and they're about to get attacked by the um orcs and the orcs have said if you all you know give in we'll uh we'll not kill you all um yeah. so like you just give in and give us the the weird looking sword thing and um Arendir sees the sword. Teo shows it to him because, again, we were led to believe that perhaps Teo is secretly Sauron the entire time. Baby Sauron. He's like a baby Sauron, but he gives it to Arendir. And Arendir's like, hmm, this is some sort of key. I don't know what it's a key for, but I'm going to half use the key a little bit and go, I think we can do something else with it. Let's defend ourselves against these orcs. Some of the humans mm-hmm. go and join the orcs because, you know, they had fought on the side of Sauron generations before or more got generations which is a very also weird like i don't know i tend to not like the kind of like generational evil narratives yeah um especially also because like and i also again you know this is not why it's a problem but it's also like i don't even think that's like true to tolkien exactly because i think i think like a lot of the point of like the character of aragorn is like redeeming the like evil or like temptation experienced by his forebear Isildur, which was it ultimately allowed for the ring to not be destroyed, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I think the fact like the idea, right, that your your ancestors are not you, that you don't have this like genealogical determinism, I actually think is like a good thing that is within Tolkien, within like the way that Tolkien sees the world in this uh in these texts. 
And that like then having this like actually this group of people like they used to be servants of Morgoth and or, and servants of Sauron. And so obviously they're all going to like switch sides and be like, you know who are awesome? These orcs. They seem like cool, great, fun guys. And despite the fact that they're just like out there like murdering people for no apparent reason. So it just it just doesn't it doesn't work. That doesn't work for me. Yeah, it's just, it was so, it was just a weird just storyline that just didn't seem to make any sense, really. Yeah. So we then in the in the next episode, right, we're sort of trying it, we're sort of trying to deal with this uh, kind of battle situation, which uh, starts starts off well, though it turns out they're, you know, fighting, they're fighting what they think is the orcs. And it turns out they're at they've actually been fighting their fellow villagers and feel bad about it. But I guess also, I don't know, they're bad, like their fault, yeah. I guess. So it starts out with this <laughs> battle at the at the watchtower, and they kill pretty much everybody who comes in there. They They drop some rocks on them before they get there. And then they crush the tower on top of them and it's still one of those things where you're like what the hell like that was that was a lot of people died there oh wait they weren't even orcs and then the rest of the orcs attacked them in the village and they are fighting a losing battle they're they're going to die basically they're getting overrun by the orcs and Bronwyn gets wounded, uh, you know, because also like Aaron Dare also in this episode is like we are in love and Aaron Bronwyn's like yeah and then Bronwyn gets like shot very like shot with an arrow and like maybe Bronwyn's not gonna make it um you know death fake outs spoiler alert yeah, we get some d- death fake outs uh Ar- Aaron Deere um doesn't he he tells Bronwyn he loves her and he's like do you remember that time we made a baby all those years ago we should do that again if we survive remember that time that we pined at each other from afar and definitely never had sex you just like years ago had sex with this like guy who totally looked like me because i'm your type no they banked they absolutely banked um so the uh the main orc army is killing them um teo wants to save bronwyn so he tells adar this is where the sword is and then adar uh gives Waldrig, who was just like he was I think he wasn't he the, the tavern owner in the town who has been like secretly on their side the entire time like secretly on the side of the orcs and he's like okay uh, I am an evil man here and I am going to do evil so um Adar gives him the sword and tells him what to do with it we don't know what he's going to do it yet because at that point that's when Galadriel and Halbrin and all of the Numenor show up and kick the orcs asses Hell yeah. It's like, it's it's also like very like deus ex machina that like, of course, at this like precise moment when like, it seems like all is lost. And then here's like our fancy like army who are like literally like shining. They're like in shiny armor and like riding on their like shiny horses. And it's very like, ah, yes, here, here are the, here are the shiny, the shiny people. Yeah, we're going to win um, this. Uh, but it turns out that, you know, it's like, so like there is a whole thing, there's this whole thing, right, with the special sword and uh, the special sword that it, they end up that like, I can't remember exactly how it all goes down, but basically like it turns out that at some point like something got switched and that there was like a decoy sword. And so they think that they have the good sword. I mean, they think that they have the real sword, but instead, uh, Waldrake, who's the guy who is like, hey, let's please side with Sauron. He actually has a sword and he kind of pushes it into this like dam mechanism situation. And this causes a volcano eruption, I guess, basically. Okay, so Sarah, I have to ask, did you write these two? 
No. <laughs> okay, I was about to say. No. Phredomagnetic fre- eruption and pyroclastic flow. I'm looking at them going, ooh, you speak of my language. Yeah, that... So, basically... As I, as I have said, I did not take notes when watching these episodes, and so then I just copied these descriptions from Wikipedia <laughs> in terms of just, like, having a basic reminder of stuff that happened. Um, I, yeah, me, me watching the show, I'm like, oh, there's a volcano now, I guess. Yeah, so basically, basically what happens is uh, the tunnels have been used. So, when... Uh, large quantities of water make contact, contact with large quantities of uh, magma. It, it obviously heats the water very, very quickly. You get tons of steam. The steam starts to rise, rises through the magma, causes it to explode. Once that starts to basically the currents flowing upwards, it causes the basically a huge increase in pressure, which causes this. That's what the fretomagnetic eruption is, right? So it's water coming into contact with the magma, forcing it to actually produce upwards force, upwards pressure, and upwards convection currents, which keeps the flow of lava from the top of the day. Now, a pyroclastic okay, flow... Okay, I'm laughing. What? Uh, no, okay, you can correct it in a second, but I am laughing because this is all kind of making the... Um, destruction of a significant part of Middle Earth. It kind of sound like a like high school science. Oh, experience. it absolutely is a high, <laughs> high school thing. Um, I, I I have seen myself and some of my students do something similar just to demonstrate uh, pressure before is how you can superheat water very, very quickly to produce tons of steam, which produces tons of pressure, which can then be used to turn turbines and therefore produce energy. Um, now, pyroclastic flow is the last thing. Um, so this is how the... Uh, episode finishes with a pyroclastic flow which is basically if you've ever seen uh any movie that involves um an exploding volcano you get this uh large cloud of gas coming and spreading out from it and ash and it usually has boulders and bricks and stuff like this here think of it as um uh, a magma filled avalanche coming down the mountain incredibly quickly and filled with nothing but destruction and death for anybody who gets involved and the episode finishes with um galadriel who thought she had just won the day looking into the cloud as it hits her and we're like did it kill her spoiler alert it did not no we next episode seven the eye Eh. We don't know where we don't know where where Isildur is. Maybe he's dead. This is the dumbest death fake out because if you know anything, you know Isildur is so intensely not dead. Yeah, but as I said, the episode it's, at the it, end finishes with is Galadriel swallowed up and eaten by because we see the the pyroclastic flow killing and destroying tons of stuff, and then Galadriel's just standing there, and you're like, oh well, it must have killed her, but no, 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 no couldn't possibly be done but yeah and we also have the nope. where's Isildur is Isildur dead where's is Isildur dead is I bet Isildur dead? is dead it's not like Isildur is crucial to the fate of Middle Earth or anything <laughs> well you know he was weak <laughs> he was that's why he was so weak yeah. is because he actually died a hundred years before he was dead he was brought back to life but he was never the same So, yeah, and Hellbrand, the perfectly normal human man, is wounded, but uh, I wonder, will will he make it? Will he make it, this poor, perfectly normal human man? Yeah, uh, um, there's, there's a couple of weird things with this. Uh, we start out with Teo and Galadriel traveling together and hiding from orcs and, you know, bonding a little bit and having a little bit of chat. And again, I was sitting there going, maybe Teo, Sauron, that's why he's bonding with... Um, 
with uh, with Galadriel here, but they're looking for where the Numenorians have set themselves up. Uh, Galadriel gets back there, and we see that Muriel has been blinded um, by the pyroclastic flow. But you know who was not damaged? Galadriel, because she's too cool and badass. Nope. Um, she is fine. Halbrand I mean, is you know, Galadriel is badass. She is badass. No, no, don't get me wrong. She is. She really is. Um, Halbrand has been injured, and because because he's a perfectly normal human yeah, man, sometimes perfectly, normal, perfectly human. normal human men get injured. They get injured. That's like the thing this. that happens to perfectly normal human men, which is obviously what and Sauron is. Because uh, sorry, I mean, what Halbrand is. <laughs> that's true. That's exactly what it is for now, and because Halbrand and Galadriel have made a connection um, and possibly they want to make a connection similar to the one that Bronwyn and Aronin had definitely done are uh, hoping to make one day in the future definitely did in the past uh, and uh, Galadriel's like wait I know how to save him elven magic but not the kind of elvish magic that I've got the stuff that they keep in Eregion which is exactly where shall we say Celebrimbor is hanging out with... Uh, it's Celebrimbor. I thought it was a hard C. It could be a, a hard C, but it's more fun for me to... I am trying to torture it when I say it. Um, so, uh, Celebrimbor. I'm uh, shaking my head for the audience. Ter- she is actually shaking her head. She's not even joking about that. Um, but Celebrimbor <laughs> and Elrond are hanging out. So she goes there and they help to save Halbrand. Yes. Meanwhile, uh, the Nori has been kind of like mad at the stranger because he you know can't figure out his deal with his magic but they show up and they're supposed to be at this grove it seems like they have like you know standard stopping points essentially on their seasonal migration and because of the eruption this grove has been completely destroyed and uh, the stranger is kind of asked like hey can you like help and he kind of like pokes at a tree and it seems like he doesn't help but then you see there's like a teeny tiny flower and then the next day it's like oh actually yes it fixed everything that's nice yeah, exactly. And he's the then best. Then they also find, yeah, and then they also find um, ultra creepy tall white people. <laughs> yeah, they, <laughs> so I would like to describe them. They, it's three ladies, right? I think I would describe them all as androgynous. Yeah, but it is three ladies. I actually didn't check on who the. Uh, I didn't. I didn't look. Like, I just think it's like they've just been there a couple of times throughout the the season, and now. They're, but every they're now coming. and then you see them, and they. Yeah. I mean, they seem sinister. Like they're creepy. Yeah. So they come looking for the stranger, uh, and Nori um, tries to mislead them, but they end up, you know, destroying the Harford's caravan, and they go and hide, and that's going to come into maybe maybe they think that uh, the stranger is somebody special we're not going to say who um but then elrond goes uh remember halbrand has been saved at this point um and elrond goes and talks to thank goodness um, that perfectly normal frail human man it's good that the elvish medicine was there Um, but who has a serious interest in this smithing that um kelebrimbro has been doing uh and just a perfectly normal human interest just perfectly normal human interest (laughs) nothing special about it um and basically, uh, he's hanging around there and uh, himself and Galadriel are getting closer. Um, Elrond goes and gets the mithril um, from uh, Prince Durin, but Prince Durin has done it behind his dad's back. And uh, we and end Durin up Durin is mad. Yeah, Elrond gets banished and Prince Durin, he gets stripped of his royalty. Which is also, I'm like, can you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. You're no longer a prince. Okay, well, and also I mean, it's like, what's your... Have they technically like, done that Y'all to live for a while, but you don't live forever. Yeah, have they done that to Prince Harry in England? 
I mean, I think he quit. I think he wasn't fired. He quit. So I don't know how that like fits into yeah, things. But he's so far down in terms of like inheritance at this point, right? But because like, Sarah. how many kids do um, Kate and William have? Oh, because they're all three. first. They have three. Yeah. So yeah, like he's have, yeah, he's not. He's he's never going to be king or anything. Um, yeah. But this is the thing that uh, mithril vein, that mithril mine that they were in, which didn't look particularly deep nor particularly fastly uh or quickly uh mined um but uh when they were doing it it kind of woke up a balrog those balrogs nasty fellows i'm just saying that we were led to believe that it was because the dwarves had mined too deep and too fast that they'd woke too in this greedily balrog. And too deep yeah and this uh this balrog he seems to have been woken up by a leaf falling down into the relatively shallow uh, mine that he was in. I mean, I will say the one thing I will say on that front is uh, the whole, like, the dwarves delve too greedily and too deep is one of the, like, things that makes me, like roll my eyes at the like ah yes the uh the jewish coded think the group of people that like money they delve too greedily huh I'm, huh that's that's the move i'm that's not the saying move you're taking. i'm not saying that tolkien was on to something <laughs> ollie <laughs> no I'm, I'm literally not saying that You know, so I actually, okay, and actually I will say in general, a thing that I did like about the show is I think we get more of a sense of like dwarf culture in a way that feels less vaguely anti-Semitically coded than most previous oh, it, impressions we've gotten of dwarf culture. It is definitely an improvement. Like, I, I, I don't think there's really that much of a, a Jewish vibe to these guys at all. No, they just seem, they seem like normal dudes and they like mining. Yeah. And like, they don't seem especially greedy. No, no, like, not at all. they seem like they have an interest in mining, which is their job. In comparison to, as you, just for the listeners, um, Sarah had watched the Hobbit movies for the first time recently, or the last two for the first time recently. So she's had it fresh in her mind. But by the time the second book comes around, the end of the second movie comes around, um, Thorin Oakenshield is unbelievably besotted with that gold um it is gold it, sickness it is he has the gold yeah. sickness that runs in his family so that's why it's it's so fresh in our mind because because sarah was doing these that, people I with their big noses well. and their gold sickness <laughs> <laughs> but this does allow us to get to the last episode was there eight episodes isn't there yeah so the last episode yes. alloyed where Galadriel and Halbrand... Oh, wait, wait. First, no, we do first have to mention the fact oh my God. that they're like, I forgot about well, this. these lands, I wonder what they're called now. <laughs> it just spreads across the screen. It's Mordor, y'all. So the Southlands were destroyed and it just cuts to them burning and wasted. And then it just... Southlands fades out and Mordor fades in. And it is, it is one of the most anticlimactic and darn especially because like, there's also like that follows like somebody like I think Adar is like it's not called the Southlands anymore. Yes, <laughs> it's so it's out. just so heavy handed. Really and then it finished like it's also like come and we've all figured it out. No, of right? like, we, we, did. we know it's Mordor. But there's also the mountain is then just like, clearly Mount Doom. Then at that point, it's just like there yeah, obviously. a big volcano. And he's like, oh come on, like do a better job of it. Um, but that does lead into the last episode. Galadriel and Halbrand get there. They, they heal Halbrand. Um, Halbrand talks to Kelimber. He's like, you know what? You know when you're making this, uh, you want to make this 
think, well, why not put mithril in with these other metals, which will help it. And, and you can't get it to bond. But me, as a person who's never come across this mithril before, just, I want you to know. I'm, a a perfect, perfect, I'm just man. a perfectly normal human man. Uh, and I haven't done any smithing in a while. But how about, I just happen to have this knowledge of maybe doing it a little bit less hot. You know, just, just, I'm just saying. my opinion as a perfectly normal perfectly human, human smith. I'm definitely not. I have just looked like at it and I know I wasn't really doing any work, but I like know that. exactly what you need to do to make this thing. And Kelebrimbo is like, hmm, yes, you And this man. is when Galadriel yeah. is finally like, huh, that's kind of weird that you have all of these opinions about these things. And she, bless her heart, does some archival research. She does. Too. Yeah. Uh, see if she to figure out some thoughts she has about the royal <coughs> lineages of the Southlands. Meanwhile, the trio has managed to uh, find the stranger, our like tall, tall Gandalfy guy, mm-hmm. and there greet him as Lord Sauron. Oh my God, so Sarah! We are this guy's been Sauron the whole to- time. Uh, I just, like, I was so thoroughly unconvinced. Like, A, because I was convinced that somebody else, maybe somebody who seems like a perfectly normal human man, I was, like, pretty convinced he was Sauron. But also, I was, like, also very unconvinced by this guy being Sauron. I'm like, eh, I don't know. He seems like a nice guy. I don't buy that he turns into Sauron. Yeah, maybe he does. We, we're not convinced yet because we. who else could it possibly be? Who else? It's definitely not any perfect. Everyone else is a perfectly normal human man. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so Nori and the Harfoots have like gone to help him out because they've just like they've been threatened in the previous episode. They were threatened by the creepy tall white people. And so like they go after them and like are trying to, um, you know, help out. I'm just going to call him Gandalf and I don't, I don't care. Um, and are trying to help out Gandalf. <laughs> So the three of them are attacking or trying to convince uh, Gandalf that he's Sauron. And um, the Harfoots are like, we're going to save him. And the old uh, Lenny Henry. And they're like, no, you're good. And he helps. Very sweet. So they distract him and he ends up getting stabbed. Does a knife get thrown into him, I think? And he, yeah, Sadok, um, yeah, right? Sadok gets, gets stabbed. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but they managed to give um, Gandalf, or not Gandalf, possibly Sauron, um, the, this... Um, large uh, staff and he uses cool magic it staff. to do basically wind magic which yeah. makes and he like yeah. sends off the yeah and the tree are like hold on a second people. that's not Sauron and Sauron would never do wind magic this must be someone else one of those Istari I believe it is and, uh, and one then, of those Istari yeah. I wonder which one I wonder if it's the one who we canonically know is besties with hobbits it could, I'm, Sarah it could be could be and you say besties, but I say related true blood. Well, yes, as as we'll get into. They also, in back in Region, Galadriel goes to uh, Halbrand, <laughs> goes to Halbrand and is like, hey, uh, I so I noticed when I was looking at this genealogy chart that actually all the kings of the Southlands died off like centuries ago. And he's like, I told you in my non-sinister normal human man way that I got this cool medallion off a dead guy. 
And then, surprise! Oh my God, this perfectly normal human man who has never seemed at all creepy or sinister or weird. Mm-hmm. It's Sauron! Yeah, and it's, oh my God. It's really weird is that he reveals it. To, like, okay, so this is the important thing. Before she gets that, um, right, so before she gets the, the scroll, right? Now, again, I'm not saying the show was trying to set this up. And I'm not saying that they were going to go that much against Tolkien. Because as we know, at this point, Galadriel is married and happily. And she talks about her husband when she's traveling with Theo earlier on, right? Well, her husband's dead. Right. Or she thinks her husband is dead at this but point. The whole she thing, but she was absolutely going to knob down with Halbrand. Like, there's no... They, oh, they 100%. 100%. Right? Ali, this Sauron fucks. He fucks. This Sauron this absolutely Sauron fucks, fucks. Right? And he's about to do it. And he is, he's like, well, hello, Cladril. You are the kind of strong-willed and starey woman that I like having in my life. Please stare Will at me forever. you become my queen, beautiful and terrible as the dawn? And fuck me, Sauron. Yeah, this exactly. Sauron I am Sauron. Fucks. I killed your brother. But by the way, my good fuck. Um, but as, he, as they do this, sexy. he does like some dream magic where he transports her back to being a little kid again. And he's inside her head and inside her memories and all this stuff. And then he ends up trying to drown her. And it's just one of those things where this is one of those points where the show runners clearly needed to have some sort of showdown between them. And rather than just have her reject him and Sauron knock her out with a fist, they had to have this, what if we go into, like, let's inception her, where we're talking in her dreams and all this sort of weird stuff is happening. Because that's a power that we all know Sauron has ever had before and demonstrated millions of times he does yeah, he, dream Sauron magic. kind of fucks with people's heads I mean he kind of fucks with people's heads I, I, don't get me wrong Sarah he does a little bit of fucking with people's heads but not like this not when they're two no. of them are awake and standing inches from each other and they're having a conversation he doesn't just suddenly no, randomly also... transport them into uh, you're in your dreams now remember that image you had as a child you're living in it you're the boat now but to be fair, we've never seen the magic that Sauron can do when he's like basically all but sticking his tongue down somebody's throat. Yeah, I don't think it was tongue he was using. You know what I'm saying? Um, I think everyone knows what I'm saying, but I apologize for saying it. Um, but basically, yeah, Sauron overpowers her with his cool magic powers. Um, and then she's all like, oh, okay, all right. Um, but despite the fact that Sauron was there and she knows Sauron was there and Sauron is the one who explained to them how to do the rings they still forge three rings they're like you know what's a good idea let's make three rings let's make three rings they're perfectly going to be two now again these are the first it's not like we got literally from Sauron all of the idea about it's not like Sauron told us how to do this that definitely doesn't mean that it's like weird or a bad idea let's just make them and as we know the elf lords got the rings and human, there was nine human lords got the rings, uh, and there was no other rings made. No, dwarfs got rings, but there was no other. Yeah, rings the dwarfs made. got rings. Yeah, just there just are five rings for the dwarfs. These rings yeah. are all and perfectly yeah, that's, safe. That's just how many rings there are. Yeah. Um, is it five or seven for the dwarves? I think it's seven. It's it's three for the elves, nine for the men. It is seven. Yeah. yeah I think it's seven. I was like, that's not, yeah. Um, but it's just it's. And those are and those are all of the rings that there are. All the rings. Um, there's, there's definitely no other ring forged in secret. By the person who explained how to make the rings in the first place. Who would ever guess that? I mean, really, like 
how could how could you expect that? Yeah, it's, nobody nobody could. Um, we also get the Numenor getting back, and we find that uh, the king has died, um, yeah. and that's pretty much it. King's dead. So is Muriel going to be the queen now? We don't know because guess, perhaps know. some of that political stuff will have happened. And also, so the stranger decides to go off and, you know, complete whatever his mission is. And Nori decides to go with him. And so, oh, she, okay. she decides that she is. Oh, she decides. Definitely with him. She's like, no, I'm with you, big, tall, handsome stranger man. My personal theory is absolutely. So, okay. The Tooks are known to be, like, especially tall. Mm-hmm. And sort of lordly. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I am convinced that the Tooks are descendants of Gan- of this guy who is clearly Gandalf and Nori Brandyfoot. And that's why Gandalf won't leave these people the fuck alone because Bilbo is uh, Bilbo is a Took, his mother is a Took. Mm-hmm. And so he keeps in this, so like this is why he won't he won't stop bothering these hobbits, is because like they're his like great great etc. grandkids. Yeah, he, that's why he keeps bumping in. He's like, Oh yeah, I show up for birthday parties and stuff and I bring this thing. He's your cool <laughs> uncle. But in this case, your cool, great, 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 great granddad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, listen, right. I know, I get people are listening and we, we don't want to be saying too much. But Gandalf is 100% banging, banging hobbits, right? Like, this is what's going on. It's, this show could not. I mean, we're, we're seeding this. Like, yeah. there's there's an attraction. I'm just saying there's an there attraction. absolutely is. It's not, this is not like, oh, you're imagining this. If you haven't seen the show, when you watch it, tell me. That there are not longing little gazes between <coughs> Nori and Gandalf. This show has three romantic relationships. It has Erendir and Bronwyn. Mm-hmm. It has Galadriel and Sauron. Mm-hmm. And it has Nori and Gandalf. Good. No, there's a couple of things. Just that, That's the end of it. Just I, I enjoyed the season overall. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to Estimatio at the end. But um, a couple of things about this is uh, the show. the show made me feel one thing in particular and that is that throughout the rest of the hobbit and the lord of the rings and all of the associated media with it is elrond and galadriel should feel so much guilt because they are essentially responsible (laughs) for everything it is their fault if galadriel was even a tiny little bit more uh focused on you know if Galadriel wasn't, like, trying to, like, get into Sauron's pants for, like, most of the time she's with him. Yeah, and if Elrond... Maybe she would have noticed. Like, Elrond made the connection with the elves and the dwarves. Elrond helped to forge the rings. Elrond gave all of the knowledge and was responsible for Elrond basically saving Elrond created the forge. That's what I'm saying. It is, like, Elrond going to the dwarves and figuring out how to, like, do all of these things. Like, these rings would not... The one ring would not exist exactly. without them. And so then it's just, like... Y'all need to feel bad. Y'all need to feel way more bad than I feel like you're feeling. And stop giving Gandalf, the hobbit fucker, so much hassle throughout the rest of the movies. Sure, sure. Also, okay, now I feel like everybody's also, like, gaslighting poor Aragorn. And that they're like, yeah, I mean, you know, you can be different. But also, like, you know who really fucking sucked? Your ancestors. Like, you fucking sucked. You it's did your all fault. It's this. at least as much you your fault as these Eildors that we're in this situation. All the bad stuff that has ever happened was caused by you. You, Elrond, and you, Galadriel. <laughs> what are you doing, Galadriel? Yeah, I get it. You're staring at me. Thank you. Cam- Cam- Galadriel. Don't you set your shoulders like that at me. No, you're just going to keep doing it. Elrond, what are you doing? Oh, 
oh, you didn't talk to me for 20 years. Well, fuck you too, Adrons. <laughs> like, it's, oh, I don't know. I said, we're, we're talking about Nesta Matteo, um, but overall, yeah, I thought it was, enjoyed, enjoyed that. It's good. Yeah. Uh, Sarah. So we'll do first. We should go into that. A very falso. Will you tell me what the show gets right and gets wrong? Now, again, we <laughs> are dealing with fantasy, so it doesn't really matter. So... <laughs> Yeah, and, and also I'm going to be honest, like, this is sparse. So I'm just going to say, like, a couple of things that I liked and a couple of things that I've, like, met on. Okay, things I like. I think that they did a cool job, and this is something that I think is is actually something that I think is kind of, like, in some ways done better than is done in Lord of the Rings, that I feel like you get a kind of wider sense of how different groups of people live, that you get more of a sense of, like, the actual lives of people based in urban centers. Like we see cities, like we see Minas Tirith, but like we don't get a sense of what it's actually like living in Minas Tirith as like a normal person. And I feel like we kind of get that as like, of like in like Numenor as an urban center. And I like that. I think that's cool. I like that we have uh, both the kind of, I like that we have a lot of depiction of travel, that we have kind of soldiers who are kind of traveling on military expeditions. We have the sense of these like garrisons that are taking people from home for a long time. We also have the depiction of people who are kind of choosing this nomadic lifestyle that I like that there's like a lot of travel and motion and that at least part of that is something that's kind of presented as part of ordinary life, whereas previously I feel like it's been seen mostly in a kind of context of crisis. Mm. Um, and here it's like, I mean, obviously we're, we're, we have like impending crisis, but that not all of the travel is like directly related to crisis, at least as they know at the time. Um, yeah, so I... And also, like, we have this, like, we have a sense of, like, village life among humans that I thought was really interesting in this, like, village that Bronwyn is based in. So, yeah, so I like that, that I feel like we get more of a sense of a kind of possibility of everyday life in Middle-earth. And, um, well, this is kind of giving something away for the future, but that, like, that's almost something that, like, I feel like it would be cool to have more stories that were set in the universe of Middle-earth that are not necessarily about this specific ring related drama and uh, that that is something that I think is cool that like obviously it is still very much about ring related drama but that we kind of get more of this portrayal of what it might be like to be just like a person in Middle Earth yeah in various different contexts um which is something that like I bring up in part because it's a critique that I often have of things set in either real medieval or medieval inspired universes that most of them are like all about rich people and maybe sometimes you also get like some impoverished downtrodden and filth encrusted peasants <laughs> well that's not, wait i'm not sure if that's the best way to describe them sarah it is in the mo- in these movies i'm not saying it is in real life i'm saying it is in these movies that's what they look like that's 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 how peasants are generally portrayed they are, they are downtrodden peasants. and filth encrusted noble peasants doing their best <laughs> Uh, and I also like, I really liked the, uh, the use of libraries, archives, and archival research. And I really <laughs> I appreciate, I mean, I, A, because I do a lot of archival research and I think archival research is really, really fun. Um, <laughs> and I'm always really excited when other people do archival research. Yeah, but you um, would have to admit you were annoyed that she didn't wear gloves when she was touching those maps though. No, actually you're not supposed to wear gloves. Oh. I thought you were supposed to wear those. So, okay, that's a that's a common misconception. But, like, the most people now... I mean, so there are archives that I've worked in where you do have to wear gloves. But most archivists now say that 
any damage that could be caused by the oils in your hands is potentially offset by the fact that you're very likely to be less sensitive and less careful if you're wearing gloves because you don't have as much of a sense for the feel of the physical oh, manuscript. You, yeah. And so you're more likely to potentially like pull too hard and rip it or something like that. Yeah. So you're likely to have oil on your fingers because you, you were eating Cheetos and all that sort of stuff like beforehand. But it's but, also like wash your hands. Yeah. The answer is that you should wash your hands before touching the But if you wear gloves, you get dumb fingers. <laughs> so you're yeah. unable to open it. Wait, what do you do with that? Oh, ripped it. I'm wearing those gloves again. <laughs> I mean, have you worn gloves? Like you've worn gloves. Like your your hands are significantly less like sensitive when you are wearing gloves. I, obviously, I, I can't remember the last time I wore gloves. I think it was a kid, and that's not. It's just because we never have the weather for gloves here. Yeah, you don't you don't have real winter. Yeah. I although it well, is cold. I used to live it's cold at the minute. It's like minus eleven now. Yeah, that's that's real cold. Yeah, yeah. I, I well, I used to, I until a few years ago, I lived in places that had real winters. So <laughs> that's true. You did. Yeah. Now you uh, live in Memphis. Yep, where we do not have real winters, except every now and then we have an ice storm that the city is aggressively ill-equipped to handle. <laughs> um, okay, so, and yeah, and, and you know, I mean, the, the reason, right, that we have the archives that we have now often is because, like, there is a commitment in the Middle Ages to, like, the keeping of records. Like, the documents that I look at are the things that, like, these notaries, these legal professionals, that they, like, kept these things for their own records. As And also, like, we get a sense as we, you know, within notarial culture that as you read these notarial documents, if you read, like, inventories, for example, it refers to the fact that, you know, important legal documents associated with a family, that, like, that family would, like, keep these documents, the, like, nice parchment copies, like, in a chest in their home, and so the fact that like documentary culture mattered and that people kept important documents that referred to, you know, property ownership, debts that were owed to them, uh, merit, things related to marriage, the, um, things related to inheritance, that, uh, so yeah, so that like we know that there is this like value placed on documentary culture in the real Middle Ages. So I always think it is cool when you get to see libraries and archives and the keeping of documents yeah. in uh, things set in medieval-ish yeah versus. i always think it's cool as well especially as i said when you can see that they need that information to piece together the mystery uh, yeah if they don't have access to it they couldn't possibly piece together that mystery she would like, have just thought Sauron no was a perfectly normal human man well, if she hadn't done archival research not just perfectly normal perfectly sexy and normal oh yeah it's like this this perfectly normal human man fucks <laughs> If she had not done archival research, she and Sauron 100% would have fucked. I, I, I still think if he'd have just said, you know, I never said I was uh, king. I said repeatedly I wasn't. I think she still would have done it. It was just when he went like, by the way, now we're in your childhood dream. <laughs> well, I mean, if she if he wasn't like, by the way, specifically, actually, I am Sauron. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, but just, just so you I know, mean, I, I think, I remember I think knowing that he was Sauron was like a turn off. Yeah. I remember killing your brother that time. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he could have. I feel like if he'd been a lot subtler, like, and also like there are all these like descriptions that like is kind of vague. It's like and Sauron like was like so like seduced so and so to his side, and it's like oh yeah, I bet he did. <laughs> 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 like that's it. That's in the silver really. Okay. I'm smoldering here at you. My name is yeah, I know. Sauron. That's that is the scene I want in season two. Is I want him throwing smoldering looks at the Witch King of Angmar. Oh, I definitely. want that scene to be a seduction. Yeah, 
And at that point, he's just the king of Angmar. <laughs> well, but, yes. you know, Sauron's going to make him his witch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, smoldering looks, you cowards. <laughs> Seduction. Okay. <laughs> Seduction. So, okay, and then just a couple of things I wanted to quickly mention that I was, like, met on. Um, so... Numenor, we have this kind of discussion of the Smiths Guild. On the one hand, there is this element, right, of guilds as being exclusive and as guilds as being designed to exclude a variety of people, including in particular often women, although there are some exceptions to that, Jews and foreigners, Hmm. which is what Halbrand, the perfectly normal human man, is in this context. That said, I feel like the whole thing of the, like, idea that, like, no, you could never, ever become a smith or, like, do this thing. Like, I think, like, it just that doesn't really make sense to me, like, that this guy who shows up, that there's, like, no ever. I mean, obviously, like, that's not actually how things happen. Like, he doesn't actually just sit down and chill out and, like, do an apprenticeship as a smith or whatever. But the idea that he is, like, permanently banned from the guild seemed weird to me, especially because in a real medieval context, a lot of cities do have a kind of concept of like a possibility of uh, citizenship as coming from like residence for a long enough period. So it just, and then also it's that he has this like weird, like, ah, I have a shortcut. My shortcut is that I'm going to like steal the guild medallion and then I'm in a guild now. And that seemed to very much be showing a lack of awareness of the community elements of guilds that like you, you know, who's in the guild and, like, if some guy shows up and it's like, I got a medallion, I've been in the guild the whole time, don't worry about it. Yeah. I don't think that would work. That's what was, it's so weird that he was like, well, all I need to do to get to be doing some smithing um, is to just show up with this guild thing. But, like, everyone else is going to know to be a guild thing, you're going to have to have done your apprenticeship. You're going to have to have worked as a journeyman. You're going to have to have, like, was it five, six years or whatever it is to become the master to get the badge. So... Him, him just going like, oh, I got the badge now. That's not how that works. Like, it, yeah, like you're gonna have yeah. to prove yourself at some stage, etc. So yeah, it just it was, I, it was one of those things where I think they just wanted to get across. It's very silly. Halbron really likes the smithing stuff. It's that they, I think it's that they simultaneously, right, wanted to indicate that he's good at smithing, and also they wanted to demonstrate that Halbrand is like weirdly proficient at fighting to an extent that maybe we wouldn't expect of this perfectly normal human man. Yeah, especially since and he that, hasn't really shown. We see that yeah. he's, like, tough because he survived. But, you like, he's very tough. He's, like, and he's arm breakings and stuff. Yeah, like, he has what is, I think, arguably a beyond human strength. Yes, definitely. In that scene. Um, and so it's like, I think that's what it is, right? Is that narratively they wanted to kind of fit both of those two things into that same uh, kind of like basically like same sort of like relatively brief cluster of scenes. Um, but I don't think it works. The other thing that I don't think works is uh, Doran disinherit, Doran the third disinheriting the future Doran the fourth as his son and heir. Yeah. In that, I mean, that's, I mean, that's just, I'm not, I'm not even sure I can think of an example where that actually happened. Um, I, I'm not going to 100% say there isn't, but I will just say as a counterexample, like Henry II didn't, of England didn't even ultimately disinherit his sons, and they all literally rebelled against him. 
Like, not just, like, you told me to do a thing and I didn't listen. They literally, like, went to a war to unseat him as king. Like, and he didn't even make that move. So, I don't know. It just seems, it seems very extreme and not warranted by the situation. Yeah. It, it, it's weird. And like, it's, it's, it, it's so fast to, like, you went against me, son. I said no to this. And now you're no longer a prince. Take off that what effectively looks like a chancellor's chain, just a big rectangle of gold hanging around his neck. And as I said, it just doesn't feel like something that would actually happen. No. Seemed weird. Okay, so that's all I really had for the Vera at Falso, but I have more for the next section, oh. which is called... Historia et Veritas. What are we talking about, sir? I want to talk about meteors and comets. Love them. Okay, so so first I'm going to put you on the spot and explain what is a meteor or a comet, oh, okay. which I know are two different things. Right. So and that um, we do, and the reason we're actually talking about this right is obviously because we have the like meteor that crashes, and that's where Baby Gandalf comes from. Yeah. So um, I didn't realize you <laughs> were going to put me on the spot about this. Accurate. So uh, I wish I'd have read this adventure. Yeah, but. <laughs> read the notes on your story at Veritas. I want to learn as you're explaining it to me. Um, it says here, Ollie, do you have any specific opinions about meteors, comets, the relationship or lack thereof between them and the scientific accuracy of the meteor that brings probably Gandalf? Okay, um, right. Uh, so meteors and comets are not the same thing. They're both astronomical objects and they're both traveling through space at incredibly high speeds, all right? Um, a meteor is a solid object. So think of it as a giant space rock, right? So if it gets large enough, we refer to them as asteroids, right? And they come from the asteroid belt, they come from the Kyber belt, whatever it happens to be, they're passing through and they're traveling very fast. They're going in orbits around the sun, right? Um, a comet, think of it as just a really big, giant, dirty snowball that's floating through space, right? And that's why they've got a tail. Meteors or asteroids don't have a tail. Right? They are just black objects. I'm saying black because they're rocks and stone and iron and stuff. Mm -hmm. And when they get down onto Earth, when they've been melted down, they generally have that very dark black appearance. But they're traveling mm -hmm. through space. Um, you can't really see them. You can't really track them unless you know light is shining off them, whatever it happens to be. Whereas a comet is producing this giant tail because effectively, as mm -hmm. they're traveling through space, space is cold, but it's also got sunlight and stuff shining across it. And it will be giving off basically steam as the snowball is effectively melting as it's traveling, right? Hmm. And it's made out of dust and stuff. Uh, the comet's um, tail always points away from the sun, depending on which direction mm -hmm. it's at, etc. Uh, and they go in orbits, and they're usually much, much bigger than your average asteroid or meteor. Meteors, when they come into the surface of the Earth, that's when they become a meteorite. That's when we look up and we see a shooting star, right? So that's usually a small rock that has hit the Earth's atmosphere. And as it's coming into the Earth's atmosphere, it's going from a place where there was no atmosphere into a place where mm -hmm. there is. And you get huge amounts of wind resistance and air resistance. You get tons of heat produced. And that's where you get that shooting star effect because effectively it's melting and being set on fire. All right? Now, right. comets wouldn't have that effect. They would probably just melt at that point all right so mm -hmm. um and also they're, they're usually way way out of thing and we can see them years and years in advance meteorites coming into earth which is how gandalf manages to get here right um now it's been a long time since i did this so if i get some of these figures wrong i you, you take it with a pinch of salt right <laughs> last time i checked uh they don't they, bring wizards they don't bring wizards but they're <laughs> usually traveling at 
11 kilometers a second up to maybe somewhere around mm-hmm. about 75 kilometers per second okay. so just to put that into context so we'll just say that the average is at 21 kilometers per second right so that's kilometers per second right so that's not kilometers per hour which would be 21 kilometers per hour which is not particularly strange so to put it into american values right so around about 20 kilometers per second that is 47,250 miles per hour or around about that right so in the region of 48,000 yeah. miles per hour the fastest human created object is huh. i'm gonna say so we're i'm going to ignore the fact that spaceships are taking off so we'll take the fastest plane mm-hmm. right is the x-43 nasa x-43 i think it's actually called and the x-43 um is around about seven thousand miles per hour uh, uh-huh. and that's how high f- uh, speed we get so these rocks are coming in at forty-eight thousand miles per hour and the idea that one of those would slap into the surface of the earth especially one that's a human man-sized or big enough to hold a human man, would cause so mm-hmm. much devastation to that local area that the Harfords would have been wiped off the face of the uh, of Middle <laughs> Earth at that point, right? Now, we're not talking about human extinction level. I mean, it's only the size of a man or a car, right, that's coming in at that point. But if Gandalf mm-hmm. was inside it... But it definitely would have left more of a, an impact than what was done mm-hmm. in the show. And I said, at 48,000 miles per hour, I don't care if you're one of this diary. You are not stepping out of that or still human-shaped when it's finished. You're soup. Um, in fact, you're probably not even soup anymore because the amount of heat that would be generated once you made contact with the Earth, it's gone. It's evaporated. It's literally wiped out completely. So... That's what a comet is. That's what a meteor is. And can a human or even uh, any sort of cool uh, Gandalfy type magician show up like that? No, no, it absolutely cannot. Okay, so maybe this show is not super scientifically accurate. Sorry, if I sounded like Neil deGrasse Tyson there, I apologize. (laughs) I asked for that. No, I I encourage that. And okay, so maybe maybe it's not totally scientifically accurate. But I think that it has cool resonances with the medieval ideologies surrounding uh, comets and meteors as portents of some kind of dramatic change, uh, sometimes but not necessarily destruction. Uh, So the example I would say that probably is like best known of this is the sighting of Halley's Comet in 1066. Um, which, among other places, it's seen in England and then belatedly gets interpreted as um, basically predicting the Norman invasion. Uh, And so William of Malmesbury (laughs) talks about this, right? But he says not long after. Hmm? No, I'm just laughing that that, that's how you would predict something. Is Oh, a comet. Yeah. Well, but it's also like, you know, you you see the comet and then like a thing happens and then you're like, oh, that's what the comet was for. (laughs) So... William of Malmesbury says, not long after, a comet portending, they say, a change in governments appeared trailing its long flaming hair through the empty sky, concerning which there was a fine saying of a monk of our monastery called Athelmar, crouching in terror at the sight of the gleaming star, you've come, have you? He said, you've come, you source of tears to many mothers. It is long since I saw you, but as I see you now, you are much more terrible, for I see you brandishing the downfall of my country. And I guess from... The Saxon perspective, that is indeed, could be interpreted as the case, since, of course, the Normans invade and William the Conqueror will 
conquer. That's why he's called William the Conqueror. And uh, this is depicted in the Bayou Tapestry. Uh, so this, you know, tapestry that is made as uh, kind of commemorating the events, right, of this, uh, this conquest of England. Uh, it includes that it has a depiction of Halley's Comet, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Um, Halley's Comet, named after Edmund Halley, uh, he was an 18th century um, astronomer, and he put together that there were previous um comet sightings um I'm trying to think when he was around 1530s would have been one the early 1600s mm-hmm. so 1607 maybe maybe in the 1680s after that well it would have to be in the 1680s um so early 1680s um so he put those together and said that from the description and from their locations in space that they would have had to have been the same comet. So he mm-hmm. was then the first person who said that comets are obviously orbiting the, the sun the oh. same as we are. So it must oh, be the same cool. thing. And then he managed to get back. Now, as far as I can remember, and it's been a long time since I did anything with with Halley's Comet or talked about Halley's Comet, um, he didn't think the one in 1066 was the same one. Um he said, so hmm. from the description of it and the way it's done in the biotapestry and the way it had been described before, he thought it was a much larger one. But it was just because oh, everything was exaggerated. Yeah, and there is a lot of in discussion, right, about the fact that, you know, the things that they notice are not necessarily the things that, like, we expect they would have noticed. That yeah. sometimes there are things that, like, we might, like, go back and read and be like, oh, they're not actually seeing what we might have thought that they were seeing. Um, or certainly when we're talking about, like, an artistic depiction, it kind of makes sense, right? That maybe it's, like, a bigger comet because it's, like, in their heads, right, the portentousness this is how the, of the it comet, was for right? all to see basically right yeah that they want to emphasize that visually in a way that like might not actually map on to what the like specific lived experience was of actually seeing the comet but that like both in terms of like choices made artistically but also maybe even like in memory it would have had this kind of greater and sense he, of importance he died um, he predicted when the next showing would be. This is why it ended up with the name Halley's Comet, because he predicted when it would show up, like 1758, something around those times, um, 1756 maybe. Uh, it, it's going to be around, I can't remember what the exact year is, but it's in it's in the, the 1750s. Um, and he said it's going to show up again at this time, um, and he died before that. But they, they were like, mm-hmm. oh, he predicted this, and it showed up at the exact same time, so that's why it's known as this. I think it might be called 1P as well. Um, but... I said it's been a long time. Uh, but Halley's Comet showed up in 1986 when mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Brady here was uh, merely a five-year-old. And it was the most amazing thing. I, I distinctly remember sitting on my dad's shoulders and being out at nighttime and watching it. Mm. And I grew up to go into physics and yeah. spend a lot of my time studying astronomy. And I, I link it back to that. I linked it back to yeah. us getting out telescopes and I mean I, awesome. I grew up not particularly rich so for us to have gone out of the way to get telescope I remember, I, I remember mm-hmm. looking through my dad's binoculars looking through my dad's rifle scope to try and get a better picture of it and like and yeah I still, I still remember, I remember drawing it it just didn't might be even be drawings at home um, that my, all of myself and my brothers and my sisters and all had drawn of like the comet and it was like such a big Aww. breaking news story and stuff at the time and that was that was the only time in living memory when we've as human beings have been able to send probes up to Halley's Comet because mm. it's not going to come around ah. for another 
yeah. 30 years from now. So it's okay. fantastic that, you know, we were able to send people up and see what it's like. And that's where we got this confirmation that it's made out of ice and snow and stuff like this. Yeah. Right. I, so I, that's awesome. Nerds, uh, I, I am. I, I, I love comets and I love all this stuff. It's not my area of physics in particular, but yeah, I, I love it. So, yeah. I'm delighted Sarah brought this up. I wish I'd have read this in the notes earlier. I'd have gone and done some reading. (laughs) And also it's 1986. So from a a medieval perspective, uh, it was a portent of my upcoming birth, obviously, also. (laughs) Well, of course, Sarah. Because you're just a baby. I was born born in 87, so. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're just just a baby. (laughs) I'm not that young. Um, and the other thing I was going to say about Halley's Comet is that also it is obviously the nature of comets, right? That you can see the comet in a lot of different places around the world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that there is. Could you, can you see it from everywhere on Earth? Yeah, pretty or much. Like, it's so far away okay. that in the night sky it's going to be there. Um, there are people. You won't be able to see it as continuously as you know, um, because you know at different points it's going to be basically the rotation of the Earth and the. Earth is tilted, so you can end up in a situation where you actually just can't reach it because no matter where you spin, you don't actually come into visual time mm-hmm. with something in that area of space. But that would be very rare. And Halley's Comet is such a large object, and it's so far away that yeah, it's mm-hmm. basically visible from everywhere. Yeah, so so that's actually one of the other things that I think is really cool uh, from the perspective of thinking about the growing field of the global Middle Ages, right? That there's a growing interest in thinking about what kinds of sort of global connectivities can we see between different places? How can we think about the medieval world as being a much wider one, Uh, you know, from a perspective of what I do more often, which is like social and economic history. It's that you can certainly think about there being like trade connections that especially when you kind of look at like routes and different kind of webs and interconnections, right, are connecting, you know, Europe and the Middle East uh, and, you know, places like China and Japan. And but that's also true if you're interested in this kind of history of science angle that um, specifically, I believe the 837 sighting of what has, you know, been identified now as being Halley's Comet uh, is recorded separately in Tung China, Heian, Japan, the Abbasid Caliphate and the Carolingian Empire. Mm -hmm. So, like, very cool that we have all of these records in, you know, all of these different languages from all of these, you know, really different cultures. From the uh, same all, year, you know, yeah, observing, Yeah, like, all from the same year, right? Observing this comet is is kind of amazing. Hmm. Yeah, space yeah. is so cool, guys. Forget about history. Yeah. Let's do this podcast on space. Let's make it about space movies. <laughs> We should do, we should like do like an episode where we have like a reversal where we'll watch like a science movie and you'll have to explain what's scientifically accurate and I'll just like Sarah, say a bunch of bullshit. I believe you're referring to <laughs> the movie we the episode we did on timeline. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we'll have to do one that's like not at all medieval. It's only science. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, no. But the other thing that I wanted to say that I also think is cool and important from the perspective of thinking about and understanding the Middle Ages is also that, you know, there is often this perception, right, that people in the Middle Ages are dumb and that there's no interest in scientific exploration or in understanding how the world works. And that, as I often say, is wrong. And in particular, one of the things that I think is really interesting that the attribution of kind of magical or mystical significance to things that you see in, you know, the Earth's atmosphere is not necessarily like you can have that you can have that alongside 
a sense that also like we can make a genuine effort to try and scientifically understand how the world works yeah. uh, so that there's like both a sense that like oh this comet is like this like portent of this big event that's going to happen or I think you know Louis the Pious interpreted it as like oh clearly we should be like repenting and being like nicer about God and I'm gonna like go and you know do a vigil because I've seen this comet, but that coexisted with people who are making genuine efforts to observe these things and like are creating these astronomical treatises and they don't necessarily get everything right, but that you can see that there's this at least kind of like interest in observing the world around them and trying to figure out how it works in a way that I think in terms of uh, the kind of ideas at work is not necessarily entirely different from modern science. And the other thing that I wanted to note is that, so so correct me if I'm wrong on this, but a lot of mathematics in terms of at least like, I mean, so so I do know that like the word the word algebra comes from like the name of an Arab mathematician, mm-hmm. a, like a medieval lot of Arab is, mathematician. Is Muslim and my understanding, yeah. yeah, like my understanding is that like a lot of math hasn't actually changed that much. Nope. And that a lot of math, right, like we, like they knew how to do that in the Middle Ages. Um, And, you know, and to some extent, right, it's also, it's more, the kind of differences, right, to some extent are more about technology. Like it also, like it makes sense to me, right, that your understanding of astronomy is going to be improved by the fact that you have like better telescope like that you like have a telescope Better telescope. we put it stuff into space so we're not dealing with the distortion right. caused by the atmosphere we can yeah. then focus uh light onto a much larger area because again it's up in space so therefore we can collect mm-hmm. more of it and there's less problems with it and um, you also can get direct line of sight all of this sort of stuff it, it gives you just a far greater stuff but i mean yeah. even to, to put things into context right I was teaching maths this morning. Um, not my not not my particular personal favorite. I'd rather teach physics, but you know, I'll throw myself into some maths because you know I'm pretty good at it. And I was teaching some maths to some very young students. I think they were 12, 13, right? So I'm teaching these 12 and 13 year olds, and I'm teaching them Pythagoras theorem. And Pythagoras theorem has been around for two thousand years. That's, it's it's called Pythagoras theorem because like, it's named after Pythagoras. So that dude was around a while ago. That's what I'm saying, is it's we're still teaching that and it's still relevant it's still used almost every single day somewhere around the world for somebody to work something out in in an actual practical element so all of this maths has been around for a long long time well i could talk science all day yeah so um yeah it's cool so but with that i think we can move along we've been recording for two and a half hours we were like oh this is gonna take like no time at all and now it's been two and a half hours uh so i think we can get into our next segment what is our next segment called Ooh, Holly? it's called fabula nostra a film or other piece of media inspired by this one um so i i'll go first if that's okay even though i've been talking a lot about yeah. science so i just love science right i, I hope i sound nerdy and hopefully like super interested because in i again one of the things i've talked to sarah before is i genuinely love history in general and i love the history of maths and science in particular and it history links, of science is cool yeah it, it really is people should get into it more yeah. but um yeah. right so the show is called and they'd also Power. say less dumb shit if they knew more about it i would like to see an adaptation of the Silmarillion. Um, <laughs> now, I'm a little bit of a masochist in this because I'm not a fan of the Silmarillion, and I know that somebody else on this <laughs> oh, podcast I like the is currently reading it and apparently uh-huh. greatly enjoying it. I know but it's really fun. It was 
torturous to me as a kid. I mean, it's just like you're reading like a medieval like legend. It's like you're reading medieval legends, well, except it's made up once. Little Ollie, uh, taking his baby steps into fantasy, um, started with, I think it was Raymond E. Feist I'm going to go with, was my first real mm-hmm. branch into like proper fantasy. And that led on to my brothers going, oh, what about Lord of the Rings? And what about Wheel of Time? And I'd read Lord of the Rings. Absolutely loved it. And then I was like, oh, Raymond D. Feist had other books. Robert Jordan has other books. I wonder if Tolkien has other books. So I remember picking up a copy of The Silmarillion and I was 13 years old. And all I can say is, I don't care how bright you are. I don't care how intelligent you are. I don't care how much you care about the subject matter. 13-year-olds should not be reading The Silmarillion because you're not going to understand yeah. a blind bit of it. Like, And... Um, yeah. It completely went over my head. I had no idea what was going on and I hated it. So I would like them to redo <laughs> Rings of Power but actually do what's in the Silmarillion so eventually Ollie can figure out what was actually going on. Uh, I just want to also want to, this is a little bit facetious because I did read it again in my mid-twenties and I vaguely enjoyed it. But I still think I had that leftover like, oh my God, I have to get to this point. And I don't know, what the heck, what are the blue wizards doing? Right, all of this sort of stuff. But I said- a lot of stuff, like the conflict with Morgoth I think is fun. Like, I think, I think that could be fun. Mm-hmm. Mm. It is. <laughs> That's my- it's, it's, it's fun. It, okay, I'll agree <laughs> that it is fun. somewhat fun. But having said that, I would like them to see them do- uh, much more of stuff from the Silmarillion. I would like to find out more about Morgoth. I would like to find out more about all of that beginning stuff to Middle Earth. And if we could get a TV show that covers that area, I would be absolutely delighted. Yeah. So what I actually want is, especially because, like, you know, Amazon just owns whatever now. I would like to see things that are set in the world of Middle Earth that are not actually focused on the story, this particular story. Mm-hmm. Um, that I would like a thing that's just, I don't know, like I like maybe a little like just have like a thing about like the saga of like the Mines of Moria, right? And just like have a and just like do that story. Uh, or honestly, like, I don't know. There's just, like, an elf, and he's, like, hanging out in the forest, and he's, like, doing something with an ant. Like, I don't know. I just, like, I want to I want to have more of this world, but maybe get different kinds of stories about maybe different kinds of people or groups of people that are living in this world. Like, I don't know. I want, like, the, like, I want, like, urban fantasy set in Minas Tirith. <laughs> that, I, I agree. Um, I, I think I, I might have said this to you before is I call this the Star Wars conundrum, where people are watching Star Wars. Nobody gives a shit about the Skywalkers. Just give me stories and Well, and that's, and I feel shows. like, what's so successful, it sounds like about, I haven't actually watched it yet, but it sounds like that's in part what's so successful about Andor. Because nobody gives a shit about the is Skywalkers. That, yeah, it's just that, like, everybody's, the Skywalkers are done, right? We're done with that story. We don't care. We don't want more of that. But we, a lot of people have this, you know, love for that universe. And that's, I think that's what I would want to see for Lord of the Rings is just like, we like this world. Why can't we see more of this world from different angles and maybe like have an understanding of like being an ordinary person in this world? Yeah, this is brilliant, Sarah. I'm going to go back and change mine. So instead of the Silmarillion, what I would like to see is them to adapt the Kyle Katarn stories from... um, from Star Wars into some sort of TV show so I can mm. relive the stories of Dark Forces and Dark Forces 2 and then uh, the Dark Forces Jedi Outcast um, 
Dark Forces 2 Jedi Knight is the first one, then Dark Forces Jedi Outcast. Uh, so I would like to uh, see all of that. And uh, yeah, so forget about Lord of the Rings, give me more Star Wars, but it's not about the Skywalkers. And popular opinion, adapt the adventures of Tom Bombadil. No, 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 Sarah, that's terrible. More Tom Bombadil. No, he's got yellow shoes, you know. Ugh. I know. I want to see them. I want to see those yellow shoes on screen. God, I hate Tom Bombadil. Um, Sarah, uh, in our final section called the Estimadio, uh, what would you rate this overall as a show? I want to like this more than I think I actually did. Mm-hmm. I really went in very excited. There are things I like. I think it's a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous visually series, I think. Well, I don't like the intro. I think the intro is like a less cool version of the Wheel of Time intro. But other than that, I think it's visually gorgeous. I think there are some like really interesting, like new characters. But I felt like also it was like, it was, I think, slower than it needed to be. I kind of thought that like this, there's like the strain, the like mysteries of like the stranger and like set and like Sauron and all of that stuff like that. I kind of felt like was, I don't know. I felt like we didn't need that. Like it did that. That didn't really work for me. So I think it's, you know, it's way better than the Hobbit movies. Don't get me wrong, but it just ultimately, I liked things about it, but was disappointed. So I think I'm going to settle on like a three. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to watching the next season. I genuinely like hope that I like the next season more. Um, we'll see. But yeah, I think I think that's where I'm landing. Yeah, right. Um, so I'm going to do something I never do now, right? I'm going to talk about the 13th Warrior. And the 13th Warrior... <laughs> Are you still mad at me for what I gave the 13th no, Warrior? No, I'm not. I'm not, but you should have given it more. Um, but the 13th Warrior, an excellent movie, five star, unimpeachable. Um, so many would say the Tolkien of movies. Uh, but the 13th Warrior cost 160 million. And mm-hmm. when I was reading reviews at the time, all I was reading, so I didn't go to see it in the cinema. And I, it's one of my biggest regrets. Um, as a movie-going person and a person who loves movies, that I did not go to see this because I love John McTiernan movies and his movie previous to that is a movie I absolutely love, The Thomas Crown Affair. I think it's brilliant. And I didn't go to see that and I was at just the right age. I was in college and I, like, I should have been able to go see it and I didn't because all these reviews were like, 160 million, this is a crazy amount of money. It's not worth it, blah, 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 right? And ever since that and ever since I saw The Trudging Warrior, I have always said to myself, I do not give a rat's ass about the budget. It makes no sense mm-hmm. to say, oh, well, this cost 200 million, so why doesn't it look like it cost 200 million, right? I don't care that something is meant to cost 200 million. I don't care that if I go to watch the next John Wick movie, that it cost four times as much as John Wick 1 cost, right? That it should make a bit of difference. If it's a good movie and I'm enjoying it, I'm going to enjoy mm-hmm. it. But I'm going to complain about Lord of the Rings. And the fact that it is the most expensive movie or TV show ever made. And they spent over a billion on the rights and making the movie. And I think the first season itself cost 400 million. 
something along those lines like more God. than any movie in history and I get it that it's longer than the movie we, we understand we're, we're, we're not slow here right but you cannot tell me that that looks seven to eight times better or more budgeted than the Wheel of Time first season no I don't think it does now does it look better yes is it mm-hmm. Does it hold together better? Yes. Since I'm less a fan of the source material, I wasn't annoyed by any of the departures. In fact, I wasn't annoyed by any of the departures. I was perfectly okay with it. I was like, fine. I think some of the plot lines are stupid. As you said, the mystery box element, it just doesn't really do anything for me. But it doesn't look like something that costs 450 million. And I don't see how this is at all... um, even remotely viable and I know Amazon are a huge company so a billion is you know, a drop in the ocean to them or whatever but I don't see how this is at all viable to keep going so I am a little bit nervous that there won't be a season 2 of this mm. um, just because yeah. of this or even worse that it will lead to the Wheel of Time getting cancelled sooner because they've you know oh fantasy shows don't work because this one didn't get I mean, enough but Wheel of Time I feel like did I don't, am I making this up? I feel like Wheel of Time was actually like doing better ratings wise. Actually, it than was this. doing very huge ratings for a while. And again, I think the big problem with this Rings of Power show is it was being released at the same time as House of Dragons. So every week yeah. there was a comparison. And I, I really liked the Game of Thrones um, books, uh, despite the fact that George R. R. Martin really revels in stuff that i am not a fan of and there's far too much of particular things that i don't want to bring up on the podcast but we've had this conversation in private there that george like there's just way too much of that right um i was not going to be invested in house of the dragon but by the time i was finished i want to know what happens with those characters going forward yeah and i do not think i want to know what happens with the wings of power characters going forward like Obviously, I want to see where to go with this. We've got three rings. But the three rings at the end and the forging of it and who the stranger is and yeah. what's Sauron going to do now. Like, none of that none of that really grabbed me in the way that... Like, yeah. And I said, the way that House I, of the Dragon my, did, mm-hmm. it just didn't work for me. So... Well, I enjoyed it. Yeah, and I feel like yeah. I feel like my investment is coming. My investment is coming out of the fact that I like the source material as opposed to from the show. Anything that the show has done per se. Yeah, and that's that's it. Right. It's like, it's and it's the same thing. That was my was also my big problem with the Wheel of Time show. I think you gave it seven, and I gave it six point five. So, or it's, yeah. At a ten, I don't know why we were giving the scale of ten at the time, but that was, I think that's what it worked yeah, out. Yeah, when, when did we go ten? I'm not even sure if we did go ten, but I think you might have been three point five, and I was three, something like that. I know I was just slightly. I think I was higher than that. I think I gave it a four. Oh well, in that case, I must have been three point five, but it was around about that, right? And I haven't gone back to watch it, so I, I'm not going to reassess it. I when season two goes to come out, I, I rewatch it, and I probably rewatch this the week before season two of this starts. But just for me. I'm going to give it a three, the same as yourself, just a dead on flat three. It's a good, well-made show. I enjoyed it. Yeah. But nothing in this makes me want to keep watching. And the reason that I'm comparing it to House of Dragons it came up, they're not really comparable TV series. But I will say this, is that I do not like Matt Smith as an actor. I have never liked Matt Smith as an actor. And then I watched The House of the Dragon, and it's such a compelling character. 
it's such a well-acted role that I am now thinking to myself, actually, maybe I'll give Matt Spitt another chance and watch him in other stuff. Nothing like that has happened to me with The Rings of Power, where I'm suddenly reassessing my thoughts on an actor or a performer or a mm-hmm. writer or anything like this. This just felt like a show that was there. It didn't really grab me. Uh, the last thing we talked about was Vox Machina. I am more excited about the second season of Vox Machina. Yeah. Uh, yeah. greatly than I am about this I'm more excited about the Lord yeah. of the Wheel of Time series so mm-hmm. while I enjoyed it and I think they did a good job and I have none of the issues that the hardcore um, and uh, for those of at home I've, I've got the old uh, rabbit ears of uh, sarcasm the hardcore proper Tolkien purists have but yeah it's it's, it's a decidedly average show but yeah I think I think bad. that's ultimately just where it is right and I I mean, I even, as I've said before, I still haven't watched the game. I still haven't watched House of the Dragon. And that is part because I just, I am still like not in the mood for the like violent, grimdark, medieval-esque fantasy. I'm just like, I watch too much of it. I'm sick of it as a genre. Um, I'm sick of it in historical fiction. I'm sick of it in fantasy. I'm just sick of it. And that's why I have not done that. And this at least like, it's not that, but it's also, it's, fine yeah that's it's fine like like it's aggressively fine yeah yeah so again three out of six i I think a three out of five i think both of us gave it the same score like i think that's really what it is and you see a lot of people are giving it in and around about those scores like and it's really funny because unlike wheel of time where you had the the trolls giving it one out of ten and then they pure you know they, they i'm the craziest super fan of the show 10 out of 10 there's not really a lot of that with with the range yeah. of power. A lot of people, like, obviously you have your minority of assholes who are always going to go, right. there's a black woman in this. The main actress is God a woman. Oh, one out of ten. And you'll always have the people... not supposed to be badass, even though it absolutely says in the Silmarillion that she's really badass. And then you have the other people going, well, those people are all anti-woke, and I'm the wokest person, so I'm going to woke this up to ten. Like, there's very few of those. A lot of people are just legitimately just looking at it, watching the show and going, yeah, three out of five show. Six out of ten. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. I thought it was fine. But yeah. any, like, again, it's not going to win any awards, I don't think. Yeah. So, Ollie, thank you for coming on oh, to absolute talk pleasure, about... Sarah. I got to talk about science. Power. I wasn't expecting that because I hadn't read those yeah. notes. I'm like, oh. I know because you didn't read my notes. This is why you always have to read my notes. Uh, so, where can the listeners find you on the internet if they so desire? Can't, right? I'm hidden. I'm I'm, I'm a special boy in a special place. But <clears throat> I do uh, like to guest on podcasts. And I am currently, even though we're on hiatus because um, one of the other uh, hosts has recently had a baby, a delightful, lovely little baby called Emmy. So congratulations oh. to Stephanie and uh, and uh, uh, George and their little baby. And uh, yeah, they're, they're all very happy and perfect. But um, the podcast is called Judging Book Covers. It's Megan Griffin's podcast. And I was brought on as, um, I, I'm there, I'm friends with the two two girls who hosted. And they were like, oh, let's get Ollie on. And I was like, yay, I get to be on the podcast again. So I'm I'm technically a, a co-host. Um, I think it's more like permanent guest host because I'm not really the co-host. It's, it's their podcast and then I'm there and sometimes go, I don't know why the person in this book didn't do this. Like, and I, I was listening back to an episode there recently um, and 
they are so much more insightful than I am in terms of where it fits. Like, especially since we're reading like cozy mysteries and stuff. And they're going, I wish there was a dragon in this. Um, but yeah, uh, so judging book covers. And recently I guested on another of Megan's podcasts, which is called uh, Once Upon a Monster of the Week, where I play um, a Boston cop. And yes, just in case anyone's wondering, this is what my Boston cop sounds like because I'm not going to do an accent. He was vaguely Irish. A real Jimmy. And like I am his real Jimmy. And, um, and this is what he sounds like. And he's a great lad and he does lots of cool stuff. And uh, yeah, uh, and I get to play like a noir detective in their um, Dungeons and Dragons style game. So yeah, once upon a monster of the week, um, I'm not even sure when my episodes are going to come out, but if you happen to find me there. Uh, other than that, yeah, just find me on the Media Evil uh Facebook yes. group where I'm one of the moderators and uh, you know make sure you're nice to each other even though everybody's nice in that group anyway so it's fine everybody's nice nobody's, uh, nobody's a dick and everybody who's listening keep getting on to Sarah so that she'll play a video game at some stage and uh, and we'll also do the gre- and we'll also do the green knight um, what do you call it uh, fantasy role playing game RPG yeah. so that'll be fun and well, and uh, we'll we'll talk. I in in my mythical free time that I have, I have <laughs> been thinking about like doing a media evil Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, I love it! Short campaign. So, are you going to be the DM? No, I think David Baxter offered to be the. Oh, DM. Oh yes, he did. That would be class. I've never done it before. I shouldn't be the DM. Yeah, uh, David Baxter said he do because I remember him volunteering. Yeah. So yeah, and I I, yeah. I think he does that quite a bit. So Baxter, yeah, get on. Yeah, we'll be intent. Uh, so if you have enjoyed this podcast please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app please rate and review on apple podcasts i'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes please follow the podcast on twitter at media evil pod and join our facebook group and you can also find me on twitter and instagram at sarah F. decker if you have any questions or suggestions i'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com thank you all for listening to media evil bye